Lucifer means Lightbringer presents Between Two Weirwoods Live Panel Discussion Today's topic Being Parented in Westeros Featuring Glass Table Girl The Queen of Love and Booty Crow Food's Daughter And your host Lucifer means light bringer. Okay, I believe that was a moderately successful playing of the introductory video, uh, but you'll have to tell me in the crowd how that went. Hey everyone, thanks for joining me on Between Two Weirwoods. I am super fired up for this episode, as I hope all of you are. The topic today is being parented in Westeros, and I have an amazing cast of folks here, and I will introduce them in turn and let them introduce themselves. Why don't you go first? Crow Food's Daughter. So my name's Amanda. I go by Crow Food's Daughter. Um, I have a YouTube channel called The Disputed Lands, where um, I discuss different things, mostly geared towards the Ironborn and Ironborn culture. Um, I've been an active member of the fandom for about four years now, and um, I'm just having an amazing time. You can find me on Twitter at crowfood underscore SD. And yeah. All right, and of course I have the two lovely canon ladies of Girls Gone Canon, Chloe and Eliana. I'll let you guys just sort of introduce yourself together or do your sort of chemistry thing that you do there. Oh. Oh, this is fun. Um, hey guys, I'm Chloe. You can find me on Twitter as at Lizen Arbor or on Tumblr at lizenarbor.tumblr.com. And I am also one half of Girls Gone Canon, the, the half empty. She's the half full. She's the best. Uh, and I write a bunch of meta and theories and I tweet a lot, a lot of shit posting and uh, we make podcasts. Hello, I'm the other half of, oh my God, I'm gesturing like at this thing behind me. I'm the other half of Girls Gone <laughs> Canon, Eliana. Um, you probably know me as Glass Table Girl over on the Maester Monthly podcast, uh, which talks about the things that go on in the A Song of Ice and Fire subreddit, where that's also my username. So thank you for having me here today, David. Sup? Woo! Yes, this is... Uh... This is going to be a fun one. I'm looking forward to it a lot. And, and of course, uh, parenting or being parented sounds like a sort of a wide topic. Uh, but specifically what we're talking about is the way that George Martin considers parental uh, parent-child relationships when he creates his character. So Between Two Weirwoods is a very meta kind of podcast. I like to talk about um, just the writing techniques because I feel like fully a third to maybe a half of us in the fandom are writers on some level. Uh, and if we're not writers, we're avid readers. And so it's very interesting to talk about what makes the books tick, what makes George R. R. Martin great. And so the topic today is going to be specifically focusing on the way that Martin uses every character's parents, and their childhood traumas to sort of shape and inform who they are. And it, it's one of the things that makes his characters very relatable and compelling. And it's one of the ways that he makes his, quote, bad guys and psychopath figures a little more interesting uh, like we're going to talk about Cersei and people like that who end up going down the wrong path and what, how that happened. 
she's not just a crazy bitch that drinks too much. Like there's, there's things that, you know, she was abused by Robert and well, we're going to get into all that, but, uh, that is the topic today. But before we get to that, one thing that I like to do on between two weirwoods is I like to ask all my guests an opening question, which is what makes George RR Martin great? Meaning name one thing that you like about his writing that you find compelling that maybe he does better than other writers that uh, really jumps out to you. And Amanda, I'll let you go first. So um, the thing that I really appreciate about George, and I think you already know this, is um, I'm a huge fan of mythology, and George does an amazing job of, he's able to weave in his mythology throughout his series. He's able to do it in a very um, subtle way, and he is able to weave it into his story. And I really like the way that um, you're able to um, really stage that in your podcast and, and show everybody um, exactly what George is doing with that. Um, I've been reading mythology ever since I was a little girl and I, I actually have a funny story about, you probably heard this, um, <clears throat> when I was in junior high my English teacher had a parent-teacher conference with my um, parents and she gave them an ultimatum and said that I either needed to um, read something other than mythology or find another English teacher. And um, my parents were, you know how they, they shape I'm, I'm all of this. So I can guffaw loudly over that. That's hilarious. Uh, go on. <laughs> yes. So, so my parents let me switch English teachers. So, <laughs> so, um, so and um, I, if I would have expanded my horizons, I, I might not actually be here today because I still love mythology. And um, it's, it's one of the things that I think George does an amazing job with. So, so yeah. Well, I like that answer. You know that. Uh, and yeah, everyone, the chat is lighting up with bad teacher, bad teacher. Yeah, that that's tough. Um, you know, some people just don't understand uh, mythology as anything other than like crusty old funny stories from a long time ago. And obviously that's something uh, that, you know, George is trying to change people's minds about. And it's something I try to change people's minds about. And of course, all of you who have uh, checked out Crow Foods Daughters videos know that she's very much going down that same, you know, barking up the same tree, checking out the myths and looking at the symbolism. And she just did a video about, uh, well, of course, about what else, the Grey King. Uh, and uh, I really, I have to say, I liked, I liked your take on the sea dragon uh, because as we all know, when he does myths, he, he gives us those more fantastical metaphorical meanings, but he always gives you the sort of plausible explanation too. Like, well, what's a sea dragon that rose from the waters? Well, it's actually just a boat with a dragon prow that, you know, maybe crash landed on Wick. And now we have the weirwood boat hull ribs that you know, are now Naga's ribs. And so we have this story about the Grey King slaying the sea dragon and they both come from the sea. And you're like, well, one explanation could be that this incredible foreigner who came to the Iron Islands and brought all this technology and knowledge that they didn't have, uh, you know, was looked at as a god and his giant ship that they had no name or description for became a sea dragon, you know, over 10,000 years of myth. So I thought that was a really great sort of base level, like practical explanation. And Martin always gives you all those because that's how real mythology is. There's, you know, the flood myths on one level are talking about the meltdown of the ice sheets and stuff, but they're also talking about, you know, societal values of their society. Like, well, why did the flood come? Was because God was angry for specific sins. And so now the story imparts morals and a worldview and all this stuff. So mythology is very layered and George does a great job at that. So 
I love that answer. Uh, Chloe, I'll kick it to you next. Hey, that's a great answer. The mythology is really strong, which obviously not to suck up. We illustrate that with your essays and a lot of your live streams and panels. I love the mythology. I think my favorite thing is probably the why of the character. Uh, something I always put like in rubric against when I'm doing essays or writing something is why would the character do that? What's their motivation? And George tends to kind of depict that really well for characters. You get a really good sense through point of view and through just the way they think and why they think it and when they think it uh, that leads to those kind of things. And it's interesting to look at the background like we're doing today a lot with some of these parent and child relationships. Yeah, it makes sense that you would say that because um, a little behind the curtain talk, guys. Uh, I, I started an outline for this episode I put a few things down and I kicked it out to, to the ladies and said, hey, go ahead and, you know, add, add some stuff in. And I check in the next day and there's like five pages of brilliance. And I'm just like, oh, great. This is going to be awesome. I'm just going to stand back and let the magic happen. So, yeah, this this uh, topic is definitely right up your alley, Chloe. So I'm looking forward to what you have to say here. Woo. All right, Eliana, what makes George Martin great to you? I feel like everyone said all the things that I was going to say. Um, it's somewhere in between all of those things, right? It's that he's able to pull so many things together. He's holding this entire like stage, right? Because the, the magic of a story happens in that it is ultimately an act of artifice. And he's juggling all these different parts to weave something that moves people and ultimately at the end of the day like some of these stories we know by heart because they come from these myths or we've seen them already in like so many movies and tv shows but like how can you do it again and again to just make people feel something and to like see yourself in these characters and be like maybe i wouldn't make those choices but at the same time i understand that people are like that and I think that's something that I really love about how George pulls this entire world together. Nice. Uh, the, the chat is expecting, uh, expressing skepticism that I'm going to stand back and let everyone else talk, but we'll see how that goes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, that's a good answer. That's the, um, the tapestry uh, sort of dynamic of George. Yeah, we've, we definitely talked about that a little bit at Con of Thrones when we addressed this topic. Uh, Gemma from Secrets of the Citadel was bringing up the tapestry uh, sort of dynamic, the way that he combines so many things. It's truly staggering. It's one of the things I try to impart to people. You know, it's just like, I'm only taking this one angle on it, and other people will look for the Arthurian myth, and other people are experts on uh, medieval history, uh, and other people know the Marvel comics really well, and everybody sees these different things in the story and, and digs it out. So anyways, all right, so good answers, everyone. That is a fun question. Um, so... I put in here in the introductions that I thought, you know, maybe everyone could tell just a little bit of a story about their involvement in the fandom. It doesn't have to be too long, but a Girls Gone Canon podcast is really interesting from a format uh, point of view, just the way that you guys chose to do character rereads instead of chapter rereads. So I don't know, you could say what you want about the way your podcast started, but give, give me something on that. Honestly, I'm just surprised that no one has done it before. Like, I've heard a lot of people saying that they are doing a character POV read-through. And especially when people are doing an analysis on, like, a specific character and writing that essay, that's how people tend to read through these chapters anyway, especially when you're trying to get, like, all of these details. So 
to start that all off, yeah, I was just surprised that this didn't already exist. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I totally get what you're saying there because that is exactly what we do. Um, I tend to either reread characters or uh, a location. Like I'll read all the scenes at the Eerie when I'm thinking about the Eerie or something like that. So, yeah, Girls Gone Canon has been a very nice addition to the podcast community. So I just want to at least take a minute to, to say that. Aww. Thanks, man. Yeah, we've been having a really good time with it. Uh, I like to read that way because, spoiler alert, it lets you isolate the character motivations more, start to get into the character's head, start to really continue. Like, uh, there's more consistency when you remember, well, last chapter, this character dreamed about this, and now this next chapter is the next thing we get from their brain, and this is how they're feeling since then. So there's a nice connection there. Uh, Eliana and I have been friends, I want to say, since 2015, uh, we just were acquaintances on Twitter and on the internet and blogging. And now we just, we've met in, uh, gosh, we met, what, 2016 Ice and Fire Con, I think, I want to say. We got to meet in real life. And we've seen each other there every year. And I'm moving closer to her soon. So it's going to be IRL Girls Gone Canon. Uh, looking forward to that. So you met Chloe in 2016. And then at 2017 Ice and Fire Con, you met uh, someone else of significance, did you not? I don't know what you're talking about, first okay, off. Cool. I've we'll never met anyone right in my now. life. All right, cool. I met my Let's... boyfriend there, who's a person. Yep, he's a person with a podcast. Yeah. So you guys um, might, know, might know him. He's also moving closer to his podcast husband. So, spoiler oh. alert, we're both moving towards there. So that's fun. Oh, It'll be fun. Yeah. We're going to have a lot more content in 2018 and 2019 than before, for sure. Well, that takes care of the... Actually, no, Crow Foods, I guess I'll give you a chance. Uh, why don't you give me a little, a little background, because... Your story is interesting. You know, we became friends maybe like three years ago when I first started posting on Westeros.org. In fact, I think you were the first person I ever Skyped with to sort of nerd out about this stuff uh, after reading something you had done. And then you sort of dropped off the map for a couple of years. I guess you were, what were you doing, parenting? Uh, and then um, you uh, well, sort of popped back up. Um, I was in, I, I went to graduate school. So um, oh, that okay. took most of my time. Uh, for, for a while, so I, I completely dropped off the map. Um, same thing that uh, Painkiller Jane is is kind of going through at the moment right now as well. Mm. So um, yeah, it it um, took a lot out of me to uh, get that done. But after I graduated, I, I was back in the forums and, and having a good time. I think that I read the World of Ice and Fire every you know a, a different like chapter every night before I I went to bed during graduate school just to kind of help with my insomnia so uh, but yeah we we uh, kind of touched base right around I think it was 2014 right around the time that the World of Ice and Fire had uh, been published because we were looking at a lot of stuff with Garth the Greenhand and some of the Merling myths and the Merling legends because uh, that's um, just spoiler alert, I, I love mermaids, so uh, we kind of <laughs> talked about that for a while. I think I used uh, the Little Mermaid for my avatar for probably about two or three years. But um, but yeah, so it, it was great. We got to uh, finally meet uh, at Con of Thrones this year. It was great. And um, yeah, it's just the, my whole fan base has just been um, so much fun. So So yeah. So I've had a couple of people ask me, Amanda, if you're going to start a Patreon or if you, if this is something you're going to, you know, try to blow up. Because uh, I know you you are a parent. You you uh -huh. are the parent ringer on this panel. You have kids. You got a pretty busy work schedule. Um, 
How far do you plan on uh, taking this project? Yeah, so I, I, this is more of a hobby and I don't have any plans at this moment to do a, any Patreon. Um, I, um, I'm at the point in my life where uh, I'm just working and taking care of my kids and um, I, I really don't have the, a, a need for a Patreon or um, uh, that, that type of a format at this stage of my life. So um, I do encourage anybody, you know, if you have a, a creator that you enjoy, I think Joe Magician, he just started a Patreon. Um, check that out. Um, you know, there's, there's plenty of, of different creators that actually do have a Patreon. And if, if you're looking at supporting your creators, please do so. But um, at this juncture, I not, don't have any plans for a Patreon. So cool. So it's a hundred percent passion and, uh, and fun. That's awesome. So guys, if you want to support uh, crow foods daughter, just share those excellent videos around so everybody can get a grip from them. And thanks for the word of support. Of course, girls gone Canon just did start a Patreon, right? We are starting it soon. Not yet. Not okay. yet. It's soon though. Soon. We're trying to All get right. through a couple more POVs, just get a few down. And then, uh, we've got some really fun things up our sleeves. Eliana, you want to spoil, like, hint at any? Ooh. Nothing's been chosen, but there's ideas. So ideas include, like, friendship bracelets, glitter tattoos, temporary tattoos. Um, Early access also, and stuff like the boring stuff, but we're talking the fun stuff. The fun stuff. We're talking friendship bracelets. There's even, there's been discussion of, uh, of, like, the top tier getting a t-shirt, that may or may not have a burb on it and may or may not say get a job on it. So I'm just saying that's for, mm. that's been thrown around. I These are ideas. Oh, I, I know of a certain artist who is uh, known to whip up a clever t-shirt on occasion. Might wow. be, uh, might be available I've heard for of her. It. I've heard yeah. actually a lot about this girl. Yes. That is of course the hand of the dragon San Rixian. Yes. I had to bestow titles on her before uh, someone else did. That was my strategy. And, uh, oh, you know, there is actually, this gives me a good excuse to make an announcement. So um, I had the idea to give my highest paying patrons T-shirts at the beginning. And I made a little bit of a botch of it uh, because I didn't realize I was signing myself up to, like, become a shipping station, which is not the kind of thing that I'm good at. And I still owe about 10 or 15 people T-shirts, and I got a lot more people that want T-shirts. And so uh, Sanri has come to the rescue, and I'm going to be... Uh, she just opened her T-shirt store, of course, which I believe is sanrixian.com. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's it. And uh, so what I, we're going to be selling uh, mythical astronomy-related T-shirts through the San Rixian store pretty soon. And you'll be able to get those. And, of course, uh, for those 10 or 15 of you who are like, damn you, Lucifer, where's my T-shirt? We will. I have your names. I have your addresses. And we will get you shirts. So there we go. All right, I think that is all the housekeeping. Let's dive into this topic. So, uh, to state the topic, I'm going to use a quote from Storm of Swords from Tyrion. And he says, It all goes back and back, Tyrion thought, to our mothers and fathers and theirs before them. We are puppets, dancing on the strings of those who came before us. And one day our own children will take up our strings and dance in our steads. And there really couldn't be a more perfect encapsulation of the dynamic that we're trying to touch on today. Um, nobody exists in a vacuum. 
And just the way that George R. R. Martin's story doesn't exist in a historical vacuum, he considers himself to be, you know, carrying on the tradition of all the ancients before him and inspiring the people who come after him. Uh, it's the same dynamic with his characters. They don't exist in a vacuum. They are children of their parents with children of their own. And that's what we're going to be diving into today. Um, I really, really don't think you can even write a good character without taking into account their relationships with their family, uh, their childhood experiences. Because, I mean, aren't we all just like sacks of broken people, like crying about our childhood dramas and stuff, right? <laughs> uh, so, and... Yes. Yeah, and by the way, um, Amanda earlier before this cast, in the very beginning, LML earlier. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So yeah, before the before the show, we I was I was actually yeah crying about my childhood dramas to to everyone. Yeah, totally. So and just by the way, uh, Canon ladies, I see y'all are very polite and you're muting your microphones when other people are talking. Um, this is a sort of an interactive show, so if you want to jump in, laugh, you know, whatever, like. Feel free to go at it, because I'll just talk and talk. You guys got to interrupt me sometimes, just to sit that out there. Will do. I just have background noise, so. Yeah, same. I live in an oh. apartment. <laughs> right. Cool. Well, it's not too bad right now, so. I mean, and quite frankly, uh, with what with the noise that comes through in Emmett's microphone on Nauticast is just obscene. So, I mean, nobody's coming close to that, no matter what Which we do, that's right? changing. In the next like two weeks, just saying, ah, just excellent. so you know, spoiler alert, you didn't hear it from me, but since uh, Not a Cast likes to spoil Girls Gone Canon things, <laughs> Emmett's audio will be fixed. It's like a positive spoiler. It's not even really a spoiler. God dang it. And, well, I mean, we all, we've all been putting up with the substandard audio because he is so smart and the things that he has to say are so worth listening to. But I know. I hate him. At the same time, you got to take him down a peg so his head doesn't get too swole. So yeah, mm-hmm. fix your damn microphone. Uh, anyways, <laughs> uh, so... <laughs> Uh, some of the most important characters in our story are dead. Um, and Ned is probably chief among them. Uh, and of course, Girls Gone Canon has spent their first eight episodes or so doing a deep dive on Ned and all his chapters. Uh, and one of the things that jumps out to you about Ned, or jumps out to everyone about Ned, is that his death very much paves the way for everything else to happen. His children start growing up and filling various voids and having to do their own thing, which never would have happened without Ned. George sort of tricks you into thinking that Ned is the main character, and he sort of is for the first book. And then he dies, and you're trying to figure out what the fuck's going on. But now five books later, looking back on it, you can see that there's no way it could have been any other way. And you mentioned on your Ned wrap-up episode that uh, the one, you know, even in the very earliest outlines, Ned's death was in there. It was always something that was going to happen. So let me turn it over to you two to just sort of share with us some of the reflections that you've had uh, on your, based on your deep dive of Ned in a general sense. Yeah, Ned is kind of like this big paragon of a virtue of the family. I mean, you start the story and you're really brought into that stark loyalty. I say that. I'm not, I'm not a shell. I'm not a stark shell. Don't look... Don't look at me, you guys. I'm not a Stark shill, but uh, just block it. But yeah, you. Uh, he just starts off like he is dad. Dad, no, as everyone is yelling right now in the chat. He is the dad. He is, and he, as like when his story dies, that honor and justice that he brought to the story, he like transcends it to his children and all of his children have something from him. Absolutely. In fact, the very first quote uh, that we see Ned is we see him as a father. And it's from Brand's POV. Oh, thanks, Window. Thanks, Windows. Virus, virus notification. I'm sure, it's, I'm sure it's pressing. So this is from a Game of Thrones, very first Brand chapter. So deep in thought was he that he never heard the rest of the party until his father moved up to ride beside him. 
Are you well, Bran? he asked, not unkindly. Yes, father, Bran told him. He looked up. Wrapped in his furs and leathers, mounted on his great war horse, his lord father loomed over him like a giant. Rob says the man died bravely, but John says he was afraid. What do you think? his father asked. Bran thought about it. Can a man still be brave if he's afraid? That is the only time a man can be brave, his father told him. Do you understand why I did it? He was a wildling, Bran said. They carry off women and sell them to the others. His lord father smiled. Old Nan has been telling you stories again. In truth, the man was an oathbreaker, a deserter from the Night's Watch. No man is more dangerous. The deserter knows his life is forfeit if he's taken, so he will not flinch from any crime, no matter how vile. But you mistake me. The question was not why the man had to die, but why I must do it. Bran had no answer for that. King Robert has a headsman, he said uncertainly. He does, his father admitted, as did the Targaryen kings before him. Yet our way is the older way. The blood of the first men still flows in the veins of the Starks, and we hold to the belief that the man who passes the sentence should swing the sword. If you would take a man's life, you owe it to him to look into his eyes and hear his final words. And if you cannot bear to do that, then perhaps the man does not deserve to die. So this is our introduction to Ned, and he's basically teaching his son a lesson. Um, and that's the first first way that we see him. Yes. What I love actually about this passage, and I've really thought about it, is that Ned isn't immediately telling Bran what to think. He asks his children questions and he says, what do you think? Why do you think I did it? And in that way, sort of cultivating this idea of helping them form their own opinions and and thinking critically about things before he explains. He, he gives reasons behind why things are happening to Bran, but he's not always consistent as we're going to go into later in this episode. I think that like in many ways, it's super apt that we're coming at this discussion from the angle of being parented as like you know, the title, because when we talk about George R. R. Martin, I, the fact of the matter is like, yeah, he wrote all these and George isn't a parent. Like he has no kids. And to be honest, like Ned's chapters, they give us like insight on who he is and his own problems that he's wrestling with, but we don't actually often see him thinking about like consciously how I'm going to approach my kids, um, talking about how he's parenting them. We, in this quote, you know, first see him like in brand one, he's like a father. And then we see that there's another side to him as Lord Stark. Uh, we only get him like sorting out Arya and Sansa's quarrels, um, being a father, you know, laying down those rules in their point of view chapters, not in Ned's. And I mean, Kat's a little different. Kat is very much an exploration of motherhood in some ways, but in regards to like how we see Ned or fatherhood in general in A Song of Ice and Fire, it tends to be like from the perspective of their children, not necessarily from the perspective of the parents. Like we're gonna go into Tywin later and like Tywin doesn't have a POV. So George R. R. Martin is very much drawing on his own experiences of being parented. Wow, I I'm think... seeing I'm seeing some Ned is a horrible parent uh, rage. Yeah. I'm getting a little angry. I'm no. like, whoa, 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 settle down. Settle Jump down, on it, guys. Go for it. Jump on it. Well, so I understand because I am a big I'm a big Ned like uh, not hater, but a big Ned like criti critic. I am a big critic of him because he did so much wrong. But I think, which a lot of Eliana and I have mentioned in the past, is like his trauma. Everything he does hinges so hard on the trauma he's experienced from losing his sister, from keeping these kids 
in Winterfell from not warding them out, from not betrothing them. I mean, he was very afraid that what happens when you betroth the Stark? Bad things happen, apparently. Like, this is, you know, this is obviously history just happens. So I think if you look at it in the scope of Ned and reading all 15 of his chapters in a row are kind of one of those things, like, it really helps bring it out that everything he does is with protecting the children in mind, uh, being too honorable and trying to save Cersei and her kids and saying, look, just go into exile, I'm trying to help you. I mean, in the end, that would have been nicer than what will happen to Cersei and her kids, but Ned's mercy and his honor is so important, and yes, he's flawed, but what parent isn't flawed? No parent is going to be perfect, and I think that's a big nuance we need to look at in this, and not every parent is the same, and not every situation is the same. So, one thing that um, I really liked about this quote and about this scene is we have to actually take a look at how old Bran is. This is his actual first time getting to um, go and witness this. At this point, Bran is still seven years old. And um, I don't know what you all were doing at seven years old. I, for one, was not witnessing any beheadings. Um, and. The great thing that Ned does in, in this scene is he kind of explains and rationalizes and um, he, he's able to get that um, dialogue with his son to be able to um, rationalize it in his juvenile mind. Because, um, for, for example, um, Joffrey, um, his father uses a, a headsman and um, he, he may actually be a witness to some of this justice that happens over in King's Landing, but he may not actually be getting these conversations with his father where he's rationalizing it, and he's understanding things like justice and mercy that you're discussing. Uh, one of the, one of the um, roles that uh, we have as parents is giving our children the tools they need to become successful adults. And that's one of the things that I don't think Robert and Cersei did with Joffrey. And this is a really good example of Ned providing um, that dialogue and those tools and that understanding so that he's able to rationalize everything and take it in even as at a very, very young age um, so that he's able to uh, kind of be exposed to that but still somewhat retain his understanding and, and also his innocence. And so that's one of the things that I, I really liked about this scene because if Ned were to just take him to this beheading and um, have his son witness this and not allow him to fully understand and grasp what he's actually seeing, um, you know, that, that can lead to a, a lot of misunderstandings about what his role is going to be when he grows up. So um, yeah, that's, that's one of the things that I really liked about this scene. Yeah, great points all. And I think that we just, of course, it, we have to just sort of say as a caveat, like the North is kind of a barbaric place. I mean, obviously, in today's modern society, we would consider it inappropriate to behead people in front of seven-year-olds. There's no question about that. Uh, but at the same time, in the, in the culture of the North, this is the duty of the Lord is to perform justice directly. And the, the moral that's being imparted here at the end is super important. He's like, you have to do it yourself because otherwise it's possible for you to divorce the ownership of it. And then it gets to the point where you just easily execute people willy-nilly uh, instead of actually taking ownership of the decision. And it's a, it's a heavy decision, I mean, to sentence somebody to death. And the point that Ned's making is like, you got to take it seriously. Uh, so, 
In any case, um, let's go see. What do we got? Uh, I guess we'll get into... Okay, so you you were saying something about... Um, you had a note about Barristan uh, being sort of a living legend and the way that Ned appears uh, to his children and some of the similarities there. You want to expand on that? Oh, yeah. Um, and I know... This kind of was something that came off of something Eliana was talking about with uh, her feelings on the parenting between Kat and Ned. But I kind of, it's interesting because we just started doing Barristan as a point of view. And it's a big contrast of what they are legends for uh, and what they stand for and that they both kind of fight for the same team, however, for different reasons. And Barristan's is kind of an empty honor where Ned's is his sort of honor. And as we, like, get into it, I mean, they uh, Ned acts on his honor and Barrison holds out as long as he can. But Ned is such a role model to all of these kids. In our read-through, Eliana mentioned something interesting, especially regarding this Bran passage that Bran and Rob and them, like, Bran's first beheading was this moment. And the first beheading that Sansa and Arya saw was their father's. And that kind of shook me. That was, like man, that, that first justice bringing comes from seeing their own dad die. And from there on out, it, just like Sansa says, is it all lies forever and ever? Yes, basically. I, I think of that line in King's, uh, in King's Landing where it's like, take a look around. Everyone here is a liar and, you know, they're all better than you. It's like, yes, pretty much. It is all lies. And we'll get into Sansa in more detail, but it's definitely interesting how she's given these examples from her natural parents, and then she's given people like Cersei and Littlefinger that are sort of teaching different kinds of lessons. But uh, we'll get into that. In fact, I guess let's, uh, let's go ahead and turn it to the children of the Ned, and we'll take a look at each of their kids, sort of talk about the influences. Because like we said, the whole important thing about Ned is not even Ned himself, but the way that... Uh, all of his kids are acting as the story goes forward because the story is going to be decided by John and Sansa and Bran. Uh, so their decision-making process is going to be reflective of their relationship and what they've learned from their experience. So before we do that, uh, general points about Ned here. Chloe, uh, you want to read this? I do. I can do that. <laughs> I can do that. I'm I'm capable. Uh I do think, and I know there's a lot of talk right now and chat about it, I do think that Ned sheltered his children, and it's something that we'll come back to when we get talking more about Sansa's relationship with Ned, but look at the Tyrells, for example, when they came to court, seriously only, what, one to two years each older than the Stark kids, you know, the the Tyrell family is very well-versed in court. Uh, Marjorie, obviously, we don't have a POV of her, but from what we can tell, she seems pretty clever, especially during A Feast for Mm -hmm. Crows with Cersei. Uh, And Ned definitely sheltered his kids. Sansa is the first betrothal made in the family at age 11. Uh, and he doesn't betroth his kids out. Uh, we hear from other people in the story. Alice Carstark says to John, you know, my father was hoping I would marry Rob. You know, I danced with him one time, but that hasn't happened. And here I am. Uh, I mean, we hear from different characters, just like how the Starks do what they do. And especially when Ned, who didn't want to be the leader, didn't want to be 
Brandon, didn't want to be Rickard, didn't want to take his kids and make advantageous matches with them. Uh, he definitely sheltered them. He kept them there. None of the boys went out as a ward. And that was seen very much so in Sansa and Bran and Arya and Rob and uh, not as much in Rickon, obviously. But they don't learn much about the world until his death sets them free. His death is what allows their plot and this plot to progress. Yeah, you get the feeling that like he went north after the Roberts Rebellion and was just like, I'm out. Like, I'm just going to try to stay away from all this and hope that it never comes and touches me. And in, and in one sense, that left him vulnerable to Littlefinger's maneuver uh, that lured him out of King's Landing and to his doom is because he didn't even have any spies in King's Landing. He didn't bother to pay anybody to go down there and hang out and sort of just keep an ear to the wind and figure out what was going on. He just tried to forget it all existed and just stay home in the north, and he thought that that would keep everyone safe. And probably John's secret played into that too, right? Um, you know, trying to hide John's Targaryen nature. So, yeah, that I that's definitely a good point. There was some sheltering go that uh, happened, and then all of a sudden, everyone's forced to uh, go out and deal with the world. And Sansa obviously is the most startling example of being unprepared, uh, then dealing with the most awful part of medieval courtly life or whatever. Yeah, and um, being but, very alone in it, very yeah. alone. So we'll start with Rob here, um, because Rob, I think we can get through pretty quick. Uh, it's fairly basic. Rob is essentially thrust into his father's role too soon. And in that, he very much mirrors Ned, uh, who was essentially not planning to be uh, the new Lord of Winterfell. And all of a sudden, Brandon died. And, you know, he says it was all meant for Brandon. And all of a sudden, he had to literally marry the woman that Brandon was going to marry. And all of a sudden, he's the Lord. And he hadn't been expecting to do that. And um, even though Rob is raised as the firstborn, the dynamic is similar because he's not expecting his father to die when he's only 14 or 15. Uh, and then all of a sudden, he's got to change into Rob the Lord. And Bran observes this several times. It says, only Rob and baby Rickon were still here, and Rob was changed. He was Rob the Lord now, or trying to be. He wore a real sword and never smiled. His days were spent drilling the guard and practicing his sword play, making the yard ring with the sound of steel. As Bran watched forlornly from his window, uh, at night he closeted himself with Maester Lewin, taking, I'm sorry, talking or going over account books. Sometimes he would ride out with Hallis Mullen and be gone for days at a time, visiting, visiting distant holdfasts. Whenever he was away more than a day, Rickon would cry and ask Bran if Rob was ever coming back. Even when he was at home in Winterfell, Rob the Lord seemed to have more time for Hallis Mullen and Theon Greyjoy than he ever did for his brothers. I think that something that's interesting about how Rob ends up thrust again like into his father's role is that you see him even though we don't get his point of view though george r. r martin says that he would have liked to put in a rob pov if he had to do it all over again is that he's drawing so much from his memory of like what ned would do in each situation and just trying to emulate him because that's the example that he has and thankfully i guess you know if ned started brand at age seven rob does have quite a few years to draw from but he's we're also like at this part where Rob's like 15 or 16, right? And he, as well as his siblings, have this very, like Rob and John especially have this very, I want to say idealized version of Ned. 
And it's because we're not just like at any age, right? We are at this age where all of the kids are young enough that like mom and dad are still like perfect. You know, you don't understand that mom and dad are humans with flaws yet. Like maybe you can kind of see it sometimes, but you don't really get it because you're just so young and you don't have experience with the rest of the world. And so at every step, they're trying to think of like, this is how Ned would do this. And sometimes it leads into some mistakes as opposed to necessarily them understanding maybe how they want to do it first of this is how I think I should handle the situation based on my experiences and opinions. And it's hard. It's being a teenager is hard. That's a great point. Um, I think that Sansa is going to be the one who's really going to have to grasp with the idea that her parents weren't perfect and they made mistakes She's also got to see through, you know, Peter Baelish's rhetoric. Um, we still don't know how much, like, Sansa even processed everything that Lysa was blurting out before she got tossed out of the moon door. And there we go talking about Sansa again. There's really, she's one of the most interesting uh, people. I wrote five pages about it. Yeah. I was like. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, totally. I mean, there's just a lot going on there. Like I said, Rob is pretty straightforward. You can see what's going on here. This is, and it's an important story to tell because in medieval times, you know, a lot of people were thrust into leadership at a young age and i really thought that the scene where rob is trying to command all his uh commanders and the great john you know gets up and starts storming and rob has his wolf bite his finger off and stuff like that's really well written chapter showing like how hard it is to rule people even though they all are loyal to the starks and they all respect ned and stuff rob's just a 14 year old kid and he's got to prove himself and they're all going to try to push for their advantage uh, so I thought that was a really cool dynamic to see Rob navigate. And Rob does pretty well. Um, of course, it helps to have a direwolf. You feel a little more of a badass if you got a direwolf sitting around, right? Uh, but uh, let's see here. Um, here's, another good, here's another good Rob the Lord moment. Uh, this is in A Game of Thrones when they get the news about Rob, or about uh, Ned being thrown in jail. Bran, that's not the worst of it. Father was caught beneath a falling horse in the fight. Alan said his leg was shattered, and Maester Pycelle has given him the milk of the poppy, but they aren't sure when, when he... The sound of hoofbeats made him glance down the road to where Theon and the others were coming up. When will he wake, Rob finished. Uh, when he will wake, uh, Rob finished. Then he laid his hand on the pommel of his sword and went on in the solemn voice of Rob the Lord. Bran, I promise you, whatever might happen, I will not let this be forgotten." Something in his tone made Bran even more fearful. What will you do, he asked, as Theon Greyjoy reined in beside them. Theon thinks I should call the banners, Rob said. Blood for blood. For once Greyjoy did not smile. His lean, dark face had a hungry look to it. Shout out to Theon the Hungry Wolf, Stark. And black hair fell down across his eyes. Only the Lord can call the banners, Bran said, as the snow drifted down around them. If your father dies, Theon said, Rob will be Lord of Winterfell. He won't die, Bran screamed at him. Rob took his hand. He won't die, not father, he said calmly. Still, the honor of the North is in my hands now. When our Lord Father took his leave of us, he told me to be strong for you and for Rickon. I'm almost a man grown, Bran. And that last paragraph really, really hits at home <clears throat> with what Rob, the responsibility that's being put on Rob. He's now got to decide to go to war. Not only does he have to lead his family, instantly the first decision he has is, should I go to war with the South? Which is a... I mean, God, that's a heavy weight. That is a heavy weight. Can you imagine having to make those type of decisions at 15 years old? 
um, when I was 15 years old, I had a hard time figuring out what was, I was going to wear that day or, or, you know, what I was going to have for lunch. Um, it, can, I don't know how you would be able to um, really be thrust into that role where you're making decisions for an entire, um, for, for his, his entire kingdom. Um, you know, he's, he's made a king and um, he's only 15 years old. He's, he goes to war. Um, I, I really just can't process how he was able to, to do that. And Ned really is able to um, put him into that, give him those examples and, and provide him with that understanding and knowledge and, and experiences to where he, he's actually able to, to do it pretty successfully. Um, and I think that Catalan actually did a good job of allowing him to, to become Lord of Winterfell, of allowing him to become King of the North. Uh, there's a lot of mothers that would possibly be a little bit too um, controlling, and she, she really does step back some and allow him to make decisions. So I, I think that um, for his age, I think he did a really great job. Um, he just made a couple bad decisions. <laughs> Yeah, no, you're totally right. And it's kind of like, I don't know, there's a lot of flack that Kat gets. There's a lot of that going on in the chat right now, which it's wrong, so whatever. Um, that's fine. But um, I don't know. I just feel like Rob was forced into this role just like all of these kids were. They're too young. They're all too young for this, all of them. Sansa going to King's Landing, being pushed into this relationship with no political training. She had Septa Mordain, who was falling over drunk asleep at dinner too often. Like, I... You know, like, I don't know yeah. what people don't see that this was just flawed. You had Bran and Rickon went off with Osha the Wildling and Hodor as their leads. Uh, Rob was forced into this. Catelyn was there to protect and make sure as a representative of the North alongside him and of her son. I mean, that was the child that when she had to wait in war for Ned to come back, not knowing if he'd come back, pregnant with his kid, pregnant with his first and only legacy so far, like... All she had was that. That was the only way to hold to it after she had already been promised to this other man that died and done her duty over and over again. And so she comes home and Ned brings home this bastard that's rumored it's from another highborn lady. Everybody's saying it's Ashara Danes. And, you know, by not saying anything, it's pitted on her. She grows this hatred in her heart, of course. And like, she just is trying her best. Like, she's like, all right, Rob, your dad's dead. I'm losing my mind already. This is not going to go well, but... I got to be there. I got to be there with my kid. So. And actually, um, Catelyn does a pretty good job of uh, sort of not, I would, it's almost not even parenting Rob at this point. It's more like training. Like as, as, as his advisor, she mostly does pretty well. She does the same thing that Ned did where she forces him to think through things and doesn't just tell him, you know, what he should do. He asks her, asks him questions and, and teases it out and, Obviously, she's not perfect. No one is perfect. But there is a pretty interesting dynamic with Kat and Rob in the second and third book, as far as that goes. Amanda, did you have something to add to that? Oh, no, I just want to say that I agree completely. Um, she she does allow him to make a lot of the decisions, but she, she's more of a, a guide, a, an advisor. Um, like, uh, there, was one, um, there was one example where uh, she, Rob had to... Um, decide which lords he wanted um, at doing certain jobs and she she kind of 
um, gave him the the skinny on each of the lords, like um, with ruse, you know, ruse, um, you really had to to watch. Uh, whereas the the umbers, um, they were were um, they had less motives and and they were more um, loyal. But you you kind of had to identify the strengths of, of each of your bannermen and be able to put them into the roles that they were, um, that, that, that they're best suited. And so um, she, she really does provide him with a lot of guidance, but she's also able to step back and allow him to rule as Lord of Winterfell and also King of the North. And I think that going back to Rob's age, that's just such an important thing because I remember growing up as a teenager, and I think a lot of people feel that way too. You're transitioning into growing up and yeah, Kat is guiding him. There will be times when she might give stronger advice or not, but what she's doing is she's taking him seriously in his considerations and taking him seriously as he becomes an adult. And I think that that's just hard since the, since the conversation is being parented, like that's a hard thing to do as a parent to make your kids feel as though you're taking their concerns seriously at that age. Because I mean, the fact of the matter is like, you are a teenager and you kind of think you know all these things and the catch is Rob has to know all these things and make these decisions. Right. But as a teenager, you feel like you know a lot of things, you want to be treated like an adult, but you're not really ready yet to take on these adult responsibilities, which uh, I guess Rob has to do, who? And that's the other thing is Kat has never been the Lord of Winterfell. She's a Southerner in the Wolves' Den. She's never had that okay to go ahead and just be the lady and have to make these choices. She's a widow. She just had her husband who was the Lord die and now she has to take up this big role while making the right choices for the whole North. Like this is not, her giving counsel to Rob isn't just like, well, I need to go into the yard and say, like, go do this in the blacksmith, you know, like, do this. I don't know. It wasn't just that. It was, this is the future of our people, the people we are sworn to protect. We are to protect the North. And so not only that, but she's also upholding her honor to her family, whether it be her Stark family or whether it be the Tullys and trying to make these right choices. And she doesn't even have experience in it. So let alone Rob doesn't, let alone she doesn't. You can't really judge her like, well, you didn't do a good job, Catalan, since you've never done it before. You know, I mean, it's just kind of, it's very nuanced. It's it's way more gray than the black and white. She was awful. And I feel like we're just going to ban it right now in, in, uh, in the live stream. We're not going to talk about Kat taking Tyrion on whether it was a good choice or not. Yeah, I'm, I'm We're not totally gonna go fine there. with that. That's banned. Banned. Because the thing, the thing is, the whole point of this conversation is not to judge the characters. It's to think about how Martin writes the characters. The point of writing these characters is to give them compelling uh, conflicts where there isn't an easy right answer, and they just have to do their best. And sometimes they choose well, or they make a choice that is works out in some ways, but has unintended repercussions that they then have to deal with. This is how you write stuff that feels realistic. It needs to be debatable. Very little should be clear cut. And he succeeded very well at that uh, with with Kat and with Ned. And that's that's what we're trying to get at. Yeah. I also want to, coming back to Rob, talk a little bit again about how he's thrust into this position and 
has to take on Ned's role. You can see how well in some ways he took on those lessons given to him by his parents. While of course, you know, he falls short because he's like 15 or 16. Um, his younger siblings look up to him in a way that feels like he is, yes, it, it feels a little bit like he is their father um, when Sansa is trying to find courage. I, I want to say it's in Clash. She thinks to herself, not would, not what would father do in the way that Ned, speaking of like people's, how the parents are themselves parented, Ned throughout his chapters is always thinking, what would John Aaron do? And I do think it's interesting that he doesn't ever think, what would Rickard do? So Sansa draws strength in thinking, what would Rob do? How would Rob handle the situation? I must be strong like Rob. And you see that also in Bran's chapters. You see that in the affection John holds for Rob, more of like as his brother, but he's this guiding presence for them in a way that, you know, we'll probably touch on Robert Baratheon later, but Robert wasn't a presence in his kid's life. And we can see that in many ways he felt short, he fell short being an older brother to Stannis and Renly. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. There's, um, there is actually um, a Facebook group on uh, Facebook that's dedicated to Game of Thrones. And one of our people on Twitter, her name, she goes by Jojo Lady Dane. She's one of the moderators for it. It's one of the largest uh, Game of Thrones groups and A Song of Ice and Fire groups on Facebook. And there is actually a member that does um, defenses of uh, disliked characters, characters that we would describe as villainous. And um, I can't recall the name of the user, but he did an excellent defense of Joffrey, of all people. Um, and it, it really goes down to the parenting. And you see, um, Robert, he was basically, he was an alcoholic. He was, uh, most of the time he was an absentee parent. Uh, he spent a lot of his time drinking and whoring. He did not do a good job of providing his son with guidance, with discipline. And um, his, his son, if you recall, he, um, there's an instance where he, he killed kittens and he took it to his, his father. And instead of his father, you know, explaining why uh, it's not okay to, to hurt animals, his father just beat him. And uh, you can see that, I, I think that when there's the attempt on Bran's life, he overheard his father say that somebody should just put him out of his misery. And it, it, it's just another one of those things where he gets this idea in his head from his father. And it's almost like he's seeking his father's um, approval. He's, he's trying to get um, some sort of attention and a, a, um, kind of going off of what his father is doing. And so Robert Baratheon is absolutely um, a, a very good example of, of bad parenting. And his son really um, being, being affected by that. And so I, I agree completely with um, your take on Robert. And even on that, like, even to Maya Stone, you hear her and someone else talk about, you know, how several times you hear Ned talk about it, you hear Maya talk about it, that she remembers this man who used to come and play with her until one day he didn't. And you hear Ned say, you know, I went along every time to these meetings and then until I didn't, you know, I saw her every time with Robert, he dragged me along and then he just quit going one day. 
I mean, even with the kids that he hasn't necessarily like focally abused like that, you know, and like not parented, like abandonment is just as big of a thing with parenting. Uh, I mean, it's just very easy to have happen. So it's interesting to look at him even from those perspectives. He parented incorrectly all the way across the, the bastard board too. He did. And this is a perfect example of just what I was talking about. Like Joffrey is one of the most detestable, unsympathetic characters in the book. And yet when you stop and think about it, it's like, oh, wait, he is 13, by the way. Uh, he's got a lot of problems, but he was raised horribly by two horrible people. Uh, and you can trace out very specifically the kinds of mistakes that they made. And he also, somebody in the chat's pointing out, uh, in fact, it was Helen O'Grady typing all the way from Australia. Thanks, Helen. To point out that uh, Joffrey also saw his dad beat his mom on occasion. I mean, that's, that, I mean, I, my parents went through a divorce and there was, there was no abuse like that, but just seeing your parents scream at each other is horrible. Uh, and it's, it's traumatic. It's really traumatic. And he probably saw worse than that. You know, we, we kind of know that he did. So this is what I mean. Like when you're writing, you're Joffrey, uh, don't just make him a crazy kid and, and make it for no reason. Like you have to put stuff like this in there or it doesn't make sense. Or Joffrey just is a two dimensional person. Like he's more terrifying when you realize the, the reason why he's so cruel and sadistic. Uh, so yeah, we don't need to harp on the point, but great, great points, you guys. So yeah. I think we were talking about Rob. Is there anything more to say about Rob? I mean, we kind of... We were talking about Rob? Yeah. We, Who's I mean, Rob? This is, <laughs> Who's Rob? Well, this was the, <laughs> this was the plan is to jump off wherever, you know, into, into no, discussions. Yeah, for but sure. I think we've got most of what's going on with him. He has to turn into Rob the Lord, and he does a pretty good job. Uh, but ultimately, he makes the, the big mistake that he makes, of course, is, uh, you know, the... Uh, uh, Jane Westerling, and this is the thing that a 15-year-old would do. Uh, and also, part of his decision-making was this his idea of honor, of like, well, I got her pregnant, I got to marry her, right? And and so this is like a 15-year-old trying to be honorable and do the right thing, but also, you know, being hot for this girl. And he makes a mistake that basically brings down his kingdom. It opens up the opportunity for Roos to betray him, although he was obviously looking for that opportunity. Uh, Rob handed it to him on a silver platter, and the same thing goes with the phrase. So if you, if you guys have anything you want to add about Rob, uh, go ahead. Otherwise, I think we'll move on to Sansa. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> okay, it sounds quiet. Let's do it. Let's go to Sansa. Um, you want to kick it off, Chloe? All right, but I'm going to be talking for a while. <laughs> well, give, give, us a, give us a chance to jump in when you've made a good yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, go. absolutely. And I really want to hear more Amanda because I know she's been drowned out by us half the time. So Amanda, yeah. just yell at us, please. Yeah, you you drunks. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Whoa. Hey. Whoa. Hey. This is my second glass of wine, first off. Uh <laughs> <laughs> I noticed your uh, I noticed your camera screen got muted there for a second. Um is it is it time? Oh, it's only it's only four oh eight. I don't Anyways. subscribe to society's time limits on that thank oh. you i just go okay. wherever i feel that's good that's good <laughs> i mean i'll hit them too day raging day raging <laughs> hashtag blaze it um where was i legally blaze it sansa sansa, sansa. pretty pretty princess sansa <laughs> so sansa it's cool because we've talked a lot about how these kids especially fill uh very later subverted tropes but also 
they fill these tropes at the beginning. You start it with the young warrior knight Rob, you know, about to take over for his dad and bring justice and vengeance. You hear Bran, who wants nothing more than to be a knight. Uh, and then you, you get to Arya, who's a headstrong, you know, tomboy who just wants to play with swords. You get to Sansa, finally, who is the typical, like, daddy-daughter, dad's princess trope, but it gets completely subverted when her head gets slapped off, right? Because parents protecting you by not telling you the truth and naivety kind of stuff, so much that Sansa adopts this excessive trust in people that do the right thing or that she thinks would. Uh, It's a really interesting story with a really interesting trope that ends up subverted there. And Sansa starts as this very pretty, pretty princess character who could be good at everything, but then ends up broken down after learning the hard way. Oh, that's our chance. Uh, (laughs) Go ahead, jump in, either one of you. You get one breath and two more walls of text after this. Well, I was just going to say, Sansa did have to grow up very quickly uh, after the death of her father. It was just a a real huge wake-up call for her. She was sheltered. She was sheltered um, basically her whole life. Um, She thought that everything was just courtesy and the womanly arts, singing, dancing, poetry, um, you know, everything was just a fairy tale. Uh, she always compared everything to the, the storylines and songs, even afterward when uh, Dantos came to her, you know, she was just like, oh, you know, I'm Jonquil and you're Florian. And that's how she, she kind of um, rationalized, you know, what is going on is, is that stuff from fairy tales. And she basically throughout her entire arc and storyline, she had to kind of grow up and learn that you know, life is not a fairy tale. And that's one of the things that her parents did is they sheltered her. And I totally agree with you, Chloe. Uh, um, you know, that was the, the her, her big downfall was her, her um, naivety. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, uh, Ned gave that to her. People, uh, a lot of people like to compare it to Kat bringing her up that way. But at the same time, Ned nurtured her that, you know, that was his daughter and she was going to grow up and marry a lord and things were great in Winterfell and someday she would get to be out there and see. And I mean, we even hear, there's a couple quotes from Kat and Ned. I mean, when Ned kills her wolf, he thinks about like, what the heck did I just do? There's an actual quote, which I know I totally threw somewhere around here that I want to look at from him. But when hit, when Ned like kills Sansa's wolf, it's not just him killing her childhood pet, that's him killing her innocence. That's him killing her identity in a way. And it's really interesting that they both, he and Kat, let her head be filled with idealistic notions before sending her straight into a lion's den. It's Arya that gets this passage with Ned where he says, you know, we've come to a scary place, my child. It's not Sansa. It's not who's married to the crown prince. It's Sansa does her duty as what's expected of her in the societal norm that she's going to be a lady and be appropriate and make her parents proud and be an example and marry a guy that her parents say she should marry. And she puts herself into this princess trope of it to make her kind of almost like be able to deal with it in the end. I mean, and this happens through A Clash of Kings. You see her, you know, finally embrace lying from Sandor, who is actually really her big paternal figure in a Clash of Kings, and at the end of A Game of Thrones, he teaches her more than Ned did in King's Landing. That is very true, and I think that um, really, if you really, I, you know, I, there's a lot going on in the chat. Um, I'll just say that. Uh, we're not going to react to every bit of that. There's a lot of hot takes going on in the chat. That's good. I'm glad you guys uh, 
are fired up about the topic. Uh, I will say, though, that some of the, a lot of the criticism of Sansa is very irritating and two-dimensionally transparent and flat. And I do have to take a moment to sort of gripe about it. Or not gripe about it, but, like, she's 11, okay? She starts off 11, 12, and when she starts... Um, it seems like her dreams are coming to life. The beautiful royal court rides into stuffy old Winterfell. Here's the beautiful tall prince, and he's acting polite. And it's like, oh, yes, guess what? He's for you. Here's your prince riding right into your fucking throne room to make your dreams come true, and you get to be queen. So, like... Who the fuck is going to get worked up about the fact that she, like, buys into that and gets excited? I mean, these are the songs coming to life for her. And then, starting with the whole incident with Arya and the wolf and and uh, uh, the butcher boy, uh, it's just, it goes, it goes horrible. It turns into a nightmare. And here she is where, at the end of Dance, she's now, I guess, 14 or so. She's starting to figure out what the hell's going on. She's still fucking 14. Okay, and at this point, she's doing pretty damn well. I personally have never had to deal with any kind of trauma on that scale as an adult or as a child. I can only imagine being a a female in Westeros and being 11 and then having all that shit happen to you. Uh, So I think she's I'm not only defending Sansa, I'm defending the way that Sansa is written. I think Sansa is written really well. If you're going to write an 11 year old girl, you can't make her fucking action hero badass i know everything like that doesn't doesn't work like you see them try to do that to aria in the tv show and it's stupid you know it's like these are little kids and they can they can do things yes but they need to show the fact that they're inexperienced while they're doing it and sansa's arc is full of that so i'll step off the soapbox now but there you go well, to respond to that, too, Sansa was written as the black sheep of the family. Uh, that's what George wrote her as. He wrote her as kind of like this, you know, alternative to what he had going. He had these Starks who all loved each other. He had Bran. He had Rickon. He had Rob. He had Jon Snow, who was moody in the corner. He had Arya, who hung out with the boys all day and just was wild and fun. And he wrote Sansa as the black sheep in the original outline of the original trilogy, George wrote that Sansa was going to end up having Joffrey's baby and regret it deeply after, like, eventually, like, regret that she had turned on her family. And he skipped that because he realized that was even more unfair, honestly, than what he was already doing. So we could have had worse Sansa, but Sansa is learning from the mistakes not only that her parents made, but she's learning from the mistakes she made. And to be fair, of course she's going to trust Cersei. I will yell about this for the rest of my life, that of course Sansa was going to go to Cersei. She was told by Catelyn and by her father in the books that she was going to go to court. She was going to see singers and learn to play the high harp. They literally, her dad was, so there's a quote from Catelyn in Cat 6 in A Clash of Kings where it says that Sansa did the same, though few singers ever cared to make the long journey to Winterfell. I told her there would be singers at the king's court, though. I told her she would hear music of all sorts, that her father could find some master to help her learn the high harp. Oh, gods, forgive me. Like, this is something that when Sansa is on her knees pleading for her dad's life in court, like when Varys comes to Ned's cell and he's dying and he's in agony and he's experiencing all the end-of-life trauma, he's thinking about Lyanna and he's thinking about those ruined skulls of the Targaryen children. He's thinking about all this. And Varys just says, your daughter pleaded so sweetly for you. I mean, it's it's such a big crux of, like, just all these emotions in the story. And, like, Ned and Kat feel so much guilt because they didn't 
tell Sansa how court was going to be. They didn't tell her that people actually really suck here. Like, they're the worst, absolutely. She wasn't prepared for it. She was never going to be prepared for it. They filled her head with all these songs. She tried to kidnap a singer in Winterfell, you guys. A singer came, and she begged her dad. She's crying. She's like, don't send him away. I love him so much. Please don't. Like, she tried to kidnap a singer. This kid's crazy. Let her be. She's 11 years old. Like, shut up. She's 11. And that's how I feel about it. <laughs> I really think that... Um her her uh, T-Wow plot is going to be fascinating. We've already gotten that one sample chapter, and I won't, like, spoil it, but you can see she's starting to take agency for sure. She's starting to make suggestions to Peter, and not just straightforward suggestions, but, like, she's thinking about how they'll land and how Peter will consider them. She's starting to think beyond the next move and think two moves away, what's going to happen when I make this move. So I think she's set up to be one of the most interesting, powerful and exciting characters going forward. So she's the politics. She's the politics. She's going to get it. I really like what you said, uh, contrasting her to Marjorie. Uh, I'd never thought about that, but you're totally right. Marjorie's only a couple years older, but obviously has had an entirely different education than Sansa. And you're sure that like 13 or 14 year old Marjorie would be very different from 13 or 14 year old Sansa too. So yeah, Eliana actually pointed out something really cool about that uh, during Girls Gone Canon of how Ned thinks about how Sansa is at court when he doesn't want her to be there during the King's Justice chapter, when he's assigning everyone to go out and bring justice. And Eliana was like, so what would you think? Should she have been there? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely, because Marjorie Terrell would have been there. She would have been in the aisle going down with her grandmother, her grandmother clutching her arm in their beautiful floral fabric and her whispering and saying, like, so Marjorie, what did you learn from that? And educating her, which is where we see Sansa right now. She's getting that education by the end of A Feast for Crows. She's learning. Like, if you think that Sansa's arc is not to become an apt political leader, you're wrong. I mean, that's where it's going. Like, <laughs> I don't no, make the I rules. Think, You're wrong. I think the the idea of Sansa ending up as uh, the the Lord of Winterfell or even the Queen, if there is an Iron Throne, are both potential things that could make a lot of sense, depending on how George wants to land the plane. But yeah. I also want to say that, like the way that how Rob and John and some of like Ned's sons, the way we see them really internalize. Oh, the right thing to do is whatever Dad would do, right? But Sansa, it comes through in her storyline just much more subtly. Like as Chloe was saying, like Sansa was just doing what she was raised to do. And that's because, and we see this very much in Ned's storyline. Ned lives honorably. You know, we're going to see this in in storyline too. They live honorably because they believe that if you live your life right and well and honorably, good things are going to happen to you. And the fact of the matter is life isn't fair. And I... I mean, yeah, she's an 11-year-old person. Like, a lot of people are learning this in this day and age. Like, there are unfair things that happen to 11-year-olds. Or, but even then, it it's a long process, you know, learning that life isn't fair. Whereas the Tyrells don't seem to carry that same ethos. Their idea of the world is rather, your luck is what you make it. And so they chase after that. And I think that what we're going to see is Sansa learning some of those lessons from a different parent, a very mixed, weird, shitty parent who teaches mm-hmm. her well politically, but is actually like super creepy and like, oh my God, no, you should not be allowed ch- around children at all. Please stay away. Littlefinger, who, you know, very much is the same way. He makes his own luck. Absolutely, he does. 
and uh, so does uh, so does Sandor, kind of. Um, and you made the point that Sandor ends up, uh, you know, raising, uh, teaching Sansa quite a bit too. So it's interesting, like the series of teachers that she gets, uh, Cersei and Sandor and and Littlefinger. Um, it's it's interesting. It's interesting uh, from a writer's perspective. Again, not to get all meta, but like you know, to create a character and then kill their parents and then give them all these like smart but kind of evil people. Although Sandor obviously a little more redeemable than uh, Cersei or Littlefinger, uh, but it's definitely an interesting dynamic that's going on there. And Chloe, I see you uh, getting excited to say something here. You're muted. Uh, I mean, just like and like you said, I mean, Sandor becomes that paternal figure. To both of them, to Arya and to Sansa, which I know Crow's Food's daughter has a lot to say about the Arya stuff because half of what I wrote was like, oh, I saw Amanda wrote this. I'm going to write this about this. So, Well, the, the chat is clamoring for Sandor talk. So let's let's oh, give we can Sandor do that. that. I'm into that. I'm really yeah, into let's, Sandor let's, talk. Let's go ahead and roll with that. Amanda, you want to pipe in here? Oh, well, Sandor, as as an influence, um, he, he definitely provides Sansa with one of the very first eye-opening experiences, you know, where she, it, you know, you know, she is uh, taken and he's telling her that, you know, life is not a song. Um, she he's kind of removing that dialogue that she she's just kind of using as a protective mechanism. You know, she's tried her life to different songs and he's telling her you know, life is not a song. It's, it's, you know, um, and so he's, he's one of his, her very first eye-opening, um, experiences and, and he's basically kind of telling her to grow up, uh, which, you know, I, you know, at her age, she, you know, most people wouldn't have to do that, but in her situation, she, she really needs that. Uh, she, he, he's really getting her what she needed. So, um, yeah. I love Sandor's philosophy. I think George speaks directly through Sandor's mouth, uh, maybe with a little more profanity. But his everything that George thinks about knights comes right out of Sandor's mouth. Uh, so he's one of those truth tellers, I think, even though he's obviously pretty rough and unpolished, if you will. I think just to briefly do this, because I know Chloe's got thoughts, is what's since this is a discussion about parenting, Sandor's philosophy on life of how life is not a song comes from the way he was parented because right. everything yes. was given to his older brother. <laughs> everything was bestowed upon Gregor who was, who was undeserving of it. And his dad never like mm -hmm. was like, oh, uh, Gregor, don't burn your brother. <laughs> um, Yes. Like he did, he wasn't, it's not even like, do, he was just doing the least, you know, as a parent. And so it's funny that the way that Sandor might in some ways approach this informal parenting comes from his own lacking uh, when it comes to his upbringing. Yeah, I mean, there's you said it a minute ago, like the world isn't fair and there's nothing to show you the world isn't fair than like your older brother burning your face over a toy and then having your parents take his side. It's like, oh, okay, that's how it is. All right, you know, now I have a burned face. Cool, I get it. So the world fucking sucks, right? I mean, that's that's where Sanders coming from, right? <laughs> oh, okay, it was a lot. There was a lot more angst that needed to be into that first off. So I think you weren't really giving it fairness here. Okay, LML, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, Sandor, like, it's really sad because at, he hits age 19 and, like, he's out. 
He's out the house by then. He joins the Lannisters. He's in the sack at King's Landing. Sandor was there outside doing crappy work outside that he shouldn't have been doing, obviously, and he knew better. But it was to keep a flippin' meal on the table, to have a roof over his head. He went through hell all because his dad chose to tell people, shh, no, Sandor, his bedding caught on fire. And because his dad was afraid to do what was right in parenting Gregor. Gregor, he becomes such a formidable force, like, to be reckoned with. He was huge. He was a brute, even at age 16. And even, like, one of the biggest things is Rhaegar knighted Gregor. Rhaegar knighted the man that killed his actual, like, however you look at it, with his mistress and his whatever. I don't give a crap about Jon Snow in this sentence, okay? So just whatever. He's, leave Mary Sue out of this. He... However Gregor, like, was, his dad did not do the right thing. He did not stand up to his own child. And Sandor's teachings that he's learned from the girls of what Mercy is, from Arya, from what Sansa, has almost parented him more than his dad did. His mom died probably in childbirth after his sister, it sounds like. I'm guessing that's what George would chalk it up to. But his whole family, like, his dad dies because of Gregor. His dad goes on a hunting trip with Gregor and comes back and it's just Gregor. And now it's Gregor's keep. And now Sandor leaves in the middle of the night to go join the Lannisters because that's all he has. He doesn't know what else to do. He joins his liege lord in the Westerlands and does that. So like, it's just really like a lot of really good drama in that because Sandor doesn't know what's right. And worse is his sister died in mysterious circumstances, as we know from the books, which always has given me like a Dumbledore, Grindelwald, Ariana feel from Harry Potter, if anyone's into that. Like, what happened there? Somebody got too powerful at a fight and killed the little sister. But Sandor actually has stark looks. He has black hair. He has long face. He has gray eyes, the stark look. And so Arya Stark, when he goes with Arya after being in love with his sister, let's call it what it is, it's fine. And when he goes with Arya... Uh, that's his new, that's his sister. That's the sister he lost. That's the young sister he lost that died in mysterious circumstances because of Gregor. And he wants to protect her while like teaching her. So it's just like this beautiful symphony of paternalism that we exhibit from Sandor and just like all this emotion you get. And I mean, it all leads up to Brienne's chapter with, and the man breaks, you know? Uh, I'm wow. Dead. You guys can just- go. There's Thanks. like five five good points there. I wanted to Thank highlight you. and yeah, that was Thank that you. was great. Uh, and also, of course, Sander has all the hellhound symbolism that the Starks also use. Uh, he talks about dogs and wolves as if they're different, but really, in symbolism terms, they're the same. They're both hellhounds. They're both based on Cerberus. Uh, so yeah, lots of lots of synergy there. But you make a, a good point about um, about uh, Sandor, like. There is a moment, the thing that the magical thing about his and Sansa's relationship is that Sansa does actually turn around and mother Sandor. And so there, even as, it's just interesting how George flips, flips those things around, like that scene where she's literally singing the hymn of the mother and he's crying. It's like, you can feel his childhood trauma welling up right there, you know? Um, so When yeah. she sings of mercy to him. It's great that Sansa's plot with Sandor in the first few books ends with Mercy. And then Arya picks that plot up on the road with him crying in the face of fire after everything he's faced. And at the end of Arya's plot with Sandor, it's her telling him when he says, you know, show me mercy. Do you know where the heart is, girl? And then he just like 
yells to her, you know, like, come on, like, just fucking kill me, dude. Like, I'm asking you, I'm begging you, I'm going to say this stuff to make you kill me. He's like, I should have raped your sister. Like, she was so pretty. I Fuck your mom and your brother. Like, no one cares, kid. Like, just kill me, kill me, kill me, show me mercy. And she just looks at him and she's like, you should have saved my mom. Like, fuck you. You should die right here. You should bleed out and no one cares. I'm so mad at you because he's not doing the right thing, which is what Ned taught them to do the right thing. Ned said, you know, this is what's right. This is justice in our eyes. This is what you should follow. And Arya thinks he's a coward because of that. And his plot just revolves around mercy. It revolves around mercy, just like Arya's does. She takes that mercy that he talks about and takes that, do you know where the heart is? on with her, even to the winds of winter in the sample chapter, where she calls herself Mercy. So that actually is a perfect segue into Arya. And, you know, I, I'll comment and say that, you know, we, we saw Ned, the first thing he was doing was executing somebody. Uh, he was dealing out the justice. And here is Sandor asking Arya to execute him. And she decides that the just thing is to not execute him. And so constantly Martin is playing with this whole idea of justice and mercy. And he's not just giving it in a binary. He's showing all these different situations in which there's a different balance to be struck. Uh, and so I just think it's a theme that runs through the Stark kids. And Arya, of course, with a chapter titled Mercy, and she's learning to be an executioner, is hitting all of those bells. So uh, Amanda, do you want to kick off the Arya talk here? So Aria, one of the things that uh, as parents we, we strive to do, and I was mentioning it earlier, uh, one, of the, one of our roles is to provide our children with the tools necessary to be successful adults. Um, it's why, we, why they send us to school, why we have to go to soccer practice and you know try different things like art. And it starts early in childhood where we're, we're provided with skills. It starts with potty training. And I just want to say thanks, mom, because you know you you have absolutely no idea how often I use that skill. Like, it's it's great, but um, <laughs> but no, uh, it, it's it's our job to to shape our children, to mold them, and to provide them what they need to become successful adults. And um, in doing so, one of the, one of the skills that they need uh, for highborn girls, and we see that very early on in a Game of Thrones with Arya and uh, Sansa and Marcella is being instructed in the womanly arts. Um, they're they're provi provide needlepoint um, lessons because that's, uh, I guess, one of the school, one of the skills they need as highborn girls. But you can see very early on, she's rebelling against that. She's rebelling against uh, what she feels like her, what uh, her role is supposed to be, the, the skills that she, she should have. Um, instead, she's uh, we see her as a tomboy. And the, the really great thing that I see with Ned is his acceptance of that. He sees Arya as kind of like a, a Lyanna 2.0, and he mentions it after um, she becomes very teary-eyed after um, having that huge incident between Septimordain and um, with the needle point um, incident. And he finds needle later on and he he tells her let me see if we have the quote here but see he tells her this is no toy for children least of all for a girl what would septa mordain say if she knew you were playing with swords 
I wasn't playing, Arya insisted. I hate Septimordine. That's enough. Her father's voice was curt and hard. The Septa is doing no more than her duty, though gods know you have made it a struggle for the poor woman. Your mother and I have charged her with the impossible task of making you a lady. I don't want to be a lady, Arya flared. I ought to snap this toy across my knee here and now and put an end to the nonsense. Needle wouldn't break, Arya said defiantly, but her voice betrayed her words. It has a name, does it? Her father sighed. Ah, Arya, you have a wildness in you, child. The wolf blood, my father used to call it. Liana had a touch of it and my brother Brandon more than a touch. It brought them both to an early grave. Arya heard the sadness in his voice. He did not often speak, excuse me, he did not often speak of his father or of his brother and sister who had died before when she was born. Arya might, excuse me, Liana might have carried a sword if my father had allowed it. You remind me of her sometimes. You even look like her. So when that scene happens, he is identifying his, the sister that he lost in that scene, and he's identifying it in his daughter. And he kind of has a special place in his heart for Arya because of that. And even though uh, playing with swords is incredibly looked down upon in Westerosi society for highborn girls, he not only allows it, but he is providing her with, you know, dancing lessons, which he's disguising as, as providing her with more instruction in the womanly arts. And, but instead, he's, he's allowing her to kind of follow her dreams and desires and wishes. And I, I really like that part about Ned where he's, um, you know, fostering the, um, and able to allow his children to kind of go out and seek and develop those interests, even though they aren't matching what society says is, is acceptable. And, um, you know, I, I personally, Amanda, let, let, Actually, wanna, I want to stop you and, and harp on the point you just made. Um, one of the best things that Ned does is that he realizes his different kids need different things. And Arya is probably the best example of that, where he doesn't really try to force her into trying to be Sansa, and he doesn't really shame her for being Sansa. Um, and, guys, I think I might even just chop the brand section altogether so that we can mention some of the Lannisters. But one of the things that you see... Uh, with Bran is that Ned doesn't tell Bran not to climb. He understands that climbing is something Bran needs to do. And of course, Bran's climbing is a metaphor for his gaining magical sight. And so there's, you can see that Ned is basically is encouraging uh, his kids to, to do different things. And that's one thing that you mentioned with Arya. It really jumps out at me. Like even the fact that he calls it dancing lessons is almost like a nod to like, oh yeah, we're, yeah, we're sort of keeping up appearances, but not really, you know, it's like wink, wink. Yeah, I think we've all had that, at least hopefully, I had the dad that would wink and like give you some candy and be like, don't tell mom, which is actually really bad uh, to do to undermine the other parent. But, you know, oh, well, you get my point. <laughs> so uh, now, Amanda, there's, we, I feel I've, there's, okay, look, guys, there's an elephant in the room. I'll just say it. There's an elephant in the room. Uh, Aria it's very comparable to another character. Uh, someone goes by the name of Leanna. 
that we do have to talk to talk about. Uh, so, Amanda, carry on with Aria, uh, knowing full well that we are about to go to Leanna Town. Okay, so um, like I said, Ned sees Aria. She's got a special place in his heart for Aria. Um, he compares her to uh, Leanna and, on several occasions, and even in one of Bran's uh, visions, he s- actually sees um, a, a vision of um, what he he thought was originally Arya, but he was actually seeing a vision of Lyanna, and they're playing. I think that they were playing swords in that that uh, vision. And when we see Arya, uh, they talk about her, um, you know, ability to ride horses. Lyanna has the ability to, you know, they talk about Lyanna's ability to ride horses. Ned has compared her to Lyanna on several occasions. Um, she's basically kind of like, um, you know, a, a, a Lyanna 2.0, for lack of a better terms. And so, um, basically, Ned sees his sister in Arya. And so he kind of has that special place in his heart um, because he's identifying that sister that he lost. And so when he's you know, seeing Arya rebelling, when he's seeing Arya with her sword, when he's seeing um, all these, you know, different things that this willful, you know, wild-blooded child is doing, he's he's seeing his sister. So um, he, he's kind of taking it from that perspective. And um, I, I think it's very endearing to read in the storyline. So, so yeah, it's, um, Arya is one of my favorite characters. And um, I really like that he incorporated that portion um, of comparing her and Leanna together. So. Yeah, you, you really get that idea that like he sees a lot of Leanna in Arya and that's why he just can't curb her habits because it's too like, his, he's just hung up on Leanna in a, in a way. And so I, I think we can, uh, it's been fun to watch Chloe sort of like fidget and just wait for her chance, but let's, let's stop torturing her and uh, let, her, let her get in on this action here. Hello, my name's Chloe. I've been a Leanna Stark addict for about four years now, five years now. This is what you've been waiting for, people. (laughs) I've got a lot of feelings about, I'm really sorry. I feel like poor Eliana's just like crouching right now. She's over there chilling, just uh, experiencing the chat, experiencing us talking. So I'm like, I'm gonna make this happen real quick so that my wife, who's the best, can talk. Uh, So... Eddard does put all the stock in Arya with this Liana connection. Uh, and you could even see it. There's a passage where Sansa can't comprehend how Arya is, you know, she brought, she was ragged and gross and had bruises and splotches and went out in the gardens and in the mud and whatever, playing around all day. Uh, and he, she brought Ned purple flowers, purple little rose flowers, whatever, and he smiled. And he was just very sweet about it, where Sansa thought, father's going to be ever so cross with you, like, you're dirty as hell, kid. You know, like, like this is, I work so hard to be the perfect kid, and this is what my sister does. And it's just, like, some really good sister-sister, you know, discourse. But she doesn't understand, and what the reader is supposed to take from that is Ned saying constantly how Liana was fond of flowers and how Liana loves flowers. But then we go on to say that, yes, Ned sees Liana and Arya. He sees the parts that he loved. He sees these parts that made him smile, the spirit of his willfulness, of Arya's sword fighting like Liana. Suddenly she has a sword that she hid. 
of, you know, like the Night of the Laughing Tree story, which canonically exists to tell you that Liana was the Night of the Laughing Tree. And in the world of Ice and Fire, there's a cool line where it says that Rhaegar and his friends went out to uh, find the Night of the Laughing Tree. And suddenly, no connection. The next day, Liana was the Queen of Love and Beauty. Booty. Beauty. And uh, so, like, that's great. The Liana connection is cool between Arya and Liana, but there is a connection between Sansa and Liana that a lot of people fail to pull out. Ned sees the weaker parts of Sansa and Liana. Uh, he sees Liana at the Harrenhal feast getting wine poured over her head, or pouring wine, sorry, over Benjen's head because he made fun of her for crying when Rhaegar plays Jenny's song, right? Like, he sees... Sansa, who kidnapped a singer in Winterfell, basically, for a couple weeks. Like, he sees Sansa, like, who is in love with songs and knights and the tourney. Even at the tourney, the hands tourney, like, there's a little bit of condescending Ned to Sansa talk. Like, Sansa wanted to be here, and I didn't think she should, but she's all, like, watching these dudes get killed, whatever. Like, how disconnected he is with his daughter in that. Uh, and there's even a line when... Sansa actually goes to Cersei to tell her about how, you know, dad's making us leave after, you know, he forbade her to go to Joffrey. She says, I felt as willful as Arya. Like, Sansa gets willful, wicked feelings. Sansa does have the wolf blood very much to those that want to argue on that. Uh, I mean, it's an interesting connection, though, that Ned sees the parts of Sansa that won't survive, that aren't good. Like, what killed Lyanna? Being in love with a crown prince. Yeah, that's that's a great point. And in, uh, as you were talking, it, uh, my mind leapt to the scene where Sansa is pleading for the life of Lady, and and Ned is thinking of Lyanna in his head during that moment. Um, so that's like a very explicit uh, comparison. But there's also those more subtle ones that you highlighted. So thank you. That's awesome. And it's that's a good example of of again good writing. Okay, it's like Arya is the obvious Lyanna parallel. Uh, but George was also clever enough to make some Sansa Lyanna parallels that are more subtle. And it, it does the same thing with like how much Ned and how much Cat you can see in each kid. Um, he always mixes those two things and thinks about that because different kids take different parts of their parents based on their personality. So that's that was really the the point of this entire affair here, this podcast topic, was was to think about this as a writer, how to write good characters and create characters that people can relate to because when you think about all these family dramas that that form and inform who we are as people um it's there's always there's some of them that you can relate to like depending on what your specific trauma was you might relate to one kid or the other or one person's experience or the other but by writing all this stuff into his characters he's creating characters that we can relate to and that's what keeps people hooked into the story i mean what does george martin say over and over you know, the Faulkner quote about the heart in conflict. What is the heart in conflict? It means, what are you torn up about? You know, what what gets you to that point where, like, you're anguished about something or you're just not sure what to do? And he's crafted these moments with the upbringing of each character very strongly factoring into all of this and setting the backdrop. So it's kind of like the world building for each character, really. Their family drama and the way that they were raised. And it's super important. So... Great points on Leanna there. That was really cool. So can we talk about, can we turn it over to uh, the Lannisters here? I've got a section that I labeled the Pride of Lions. And the first point says, 
Tywin is a bad parent discuss. So I will uh, open that up. Well, I think that we should start with Tyrion. <laughs> let's do it. Uh, I think let, let's do this. So um, Tywin, um, he it basically treats Tyrion um, horribly throughout the entire series. Um, you know, up into the point where, where Tyrion is, is brought to the point where he actually kills his father. Um, Tywin kind of brings it onto himself. He, um, you know, has told his son, you know, I should have killed you. Um, he blames him for the death of his wife. And he, he loved his wife. He, he loved Joanna. He, um, you know, he, he sees his son as, as a monster, as, as a bastard. And he'll, he'll tell him that. And um, I don't know if you, I, you know, I've, I've always been very nurtured growing up and everything. Um, but, I, I, you know, he, he basically provides his son with, you know, incredible psychological, you know, abuse, you know, throughout his, his entire life. Even at the age of like, I think 18 or so or 16, when he became a man, he wanted to go to Essos and he basically told him, no, because you're, you're an embarrassment and I don't want you representing me. And so he said, if you do, don't come back. And, you know, and Tyrion resents that and he thinks back to that. And, you know, and it, it's, you know, affected him. And so you, you really feel so, um, so much, you know, angst and conflict when you're reading, you know, interactions between Tywin and, and Tyrion. And it, it ultimately leads to his demise. Um, but yeah, it's a perfect example of, of horrible parenting. Um, okay, so uh, yeah, I'm I'm I just felt my soapbox slide under my feet. Uh, someone in the sec in the chat uh, has made the point that Tywin uh, was an effective parent, not a good one, but he made some of the best equipped children for Westeros. I'm going to have to politely disagree uh, and say that. All of the failures of House Lannister are directly traceable to Tywin's failures as a parent. That is why Cersei is failing. That is why Jaime uh, was failing. And it is Jaime's turning away from Tywin, which is leading to his redemption. And that is all the problems that Tyrion has and the way that his children go at each other and bring their own house down. That is all Tywin's fault. So Tywin's parenting was not effective in any sense. He was a complete monster. And that is why his house is going to end in absolute ruins. And it's more than he deserves. It's everything that he deserves. So there you go. I agree that Tywin is a bad parent. You don't just decide, oh, hey, let me emotionally abuse and also sexually abuse my child because that is what happened when Tywin, A, of course, Taisho was raped, and B, because Tyrion was a child and couldn't necessarily make those right choices and consent, like, while, of course, he participated and that was very bad, he was sexually abused by Tywin using his power over him. And I, none of this is to, like, excuse anything of how Tywin treats his children, but because this is something that I think is very interesting, this idea of intergenerational stories because yeah, the song absolutely. of ice and fire is very much that that's why there's so much world building around everything of like oh my parents were like this and then that's you know we talked about it with ned his family was like this and that's how he ends up being the way he is so i think that the story of house lannister is in very many ways that intergenerational story right like 
we're going to touch on this a little uh, soon with Cersei, but Tywin's story... I'm sorry, can I just pause real quick? I just want to say that uh, the chat is very smart and they are all over this. As soon as we talked about Tywin, everyone's like, Tidos, Tidos, so... Yes. Yeah, I think I first saw, like, Colin VW called out and I was like, yes, I'm ready. We're going to talk about this. So it's not just like that Tidos was raised by... Yes, Tidos was a laughingstock and a weak, ineffectual ruler, but thinking about how Tidos actually was as a father, I think it's one lens that you can think of it through is that I was listening to Nauticast, I want to say, talking about Tyrion too, and it struck me that a lens that we can see Tywin through is that he's a single father, and Tidos had to also be a single father. So Tywin saw, sure, that his father was a laughingstock, but it seems like Tidos straight up just wasn't there for his kids. He wasn't strong strong enough for them in that he wasn't engaging with them at all. Like he wasn't taking care of their home during the War of the Nine Penny Kings while Tido sends his three eldest sons. He sends Tywin, Kevin, and Tygit to go fight in this war to risk their lives while he stays behind in Casterly Rock and he doesn't even provide strategic guidance like the way Jaehaerys II was convinced not to participate in the war, even though Ares II was there, but Jaehaerys was presumably A, running the kingdom, so he had responsibilities, and B, perhaps actually giving some military guidance. Tidos wasn't doing any of that. And you contrast that with how Tywin would see that the Baratheons were on the field, like Lord Ormond Baratheon fights alongside his son, Stefan, and he dies in his son's arms. You know, you see a father who's there for his kids and is willing to lay his life perhaps down for them, fight alongside them on the battlefield. So when Tywin comes back from the War of the Nine Penny Kings, he and his brothers are all like, we are not going to stand this anymore. Dad, get your shit together. All right, because Tidos wasn't ruling. That's what made him a laughing suck. He wasn't taking care of his kids. He was too busy running around with women. And he wasn't showing his kids. He wasn't providing a proper example to them of this is how you live in the world. You know, as Amanda was talking about earlier, a parent has to prepare their kids for these things. And Tidos wasn't doing that. He wasn't an engaged parent. And so Mm -hmm. what you end up seeing is Tywin swinging so far the other way on the pendulum, reacting too hard to like the way his father parented them. And you can see that Tywin's own siblings, like Jenna and Kevin, really admire Tywin. And maybe Tywin wasn't like as No, he was still pretty extreme as we know. But like you can see that his siblings respect him and saw Tywin as standing up for them like when it came to Jenna's marriage and so forth. Um, But he ends up becoming too involved and overbearing and in his attempt to try and maybe secure something for his kids and like be a part of their lives, he ends up trying to control them too much. He doesn't let them be their own people, doesn't support them, doesn't even like, does he know that Jamie and Cersei are like having sexual relations? Because like, that's a thing that maybe a parent should know. And Joanna saw that and took measures, but Tywin doesn't really address it. And instead of being a neglectful father, he ends up becoming an abusive one. Right. And this is the way that parenting so often works is you get these pendulum swings where my dad was like this, so I'm going to be the opposite. Or my dad was like this, and so 
through irony and I'm going to end up repeating it even though I hate it. It's usually one of those two things. Ideally, you like heal from it and come back to the middle, but usually it's either a pendulum swing or you end up recreating the same sins. And the thing about Titus being such a weak ruler for the house was that it created this void. And Tywin, at the age of about 12 or so, started making really hard decisions in his mind and making walls in his mind and making very absolute judgments about the world, being like, this is this is bullshit. It, you know, in order to write this, we're going to have to be strong and aggressive and fierce. And it works for him. And he just keeps on with that. And so he's basically never changed since he was 13 and made and flipped that switch in his mind and was like, no, you got to drown every last one of those motherfuckers and teach people a lesson. And that's how you do this shit. And it leads to the point of the whole thing with Taisha and the, I mean, I can't even talk about it. It's so upsetting. Tywin is a fucking monster to do that to your child, to do that to anybody. I mean, Tywin is a psychopath or a sociopath or whatever the right word is. Like this is somebody who has no empathy. He's burned his empathy on the altar of strength essentially long ago. And this is um, a direct result of the, 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 the weakness of Titus. So I don't know. That's, that's my take on it. Tywin, yeah, Tywin burned himself on trying to outlive his father's meager legacy. He knew he had to uphold the Lannister name. He put all this weight in that, like, and he made these choices that, in his mind, I'm sure he justified as these are just, you know, this is how it is. This is how we're going to rise to power. This is how my kids are going to make a great name for themselves. And, I mean, it all went to shit on him. It all did. I mean, Jamie cloaked. That was his heir. Jamie was his heir. Cersei and Jamie, rumors of their incest, had to have reached him at some point. I mean, it's just he made all these choices thinking this is how it will work. This is how we'll get better because it's the sins that my father did not do, I must do instead. Like, this is the right way to power where my dad chose the wrong things and it put us in the ground. And there, there wasn't enough nuance or in between where someone like Ned, you know, tries to embrace what Arya is about and tries to let her be that person, he doesn't, uh, there's no way for Tywin with this hell-strucken children horde of like a weird monster imp in his eyes and incest twins. Like, I mean, Cersei, Joanna says it best in her little vision to Jamie, whether we know if it's a vision or a dream or if it's made up or not, she says it best of, you know, Tywin wanted his, his kids to be a queen and a knight. And Jamie says, you know, this is us. This is us, you know, we're we're the queen of night and she's just, she cries, I mean. Yeah, um, well, I, I think that um, the, the hard takes that Tywin does in response to his father um, really set the tone for the, the rest of, um, the rest of his life, like you were saying. And it's the, the reigns of Castamere actually becomes their house's theme song. And it's basically, um, they're, they're being associated with basic, you know, no mercy, just killing everyone. Um, and it's, it's something that we see over and over again and again, um, Jamie and Cersei and, and even Tyrion, they, they take that sort of pride where, you know, we're, we're, um, you know, uh, whose place is it to judge the lion? You know, we're, we're better than you and this is our our theme song we're going to um you know overpower and kill anybody who stands in our way 
and instead of um, really providing their children with you know an understanding of how the world really works they're um, basically putting themselves on this pedestal and they're putting them in a, in a place where they're the only place the only um, place other place to go is down and that's exactly what's happening now in the storyline um, and, and it, it kind of sets Cersei up she uh, thinks that you know you know she is deserving that that she is um, that she should be married to Rhaegar that she is deserving of being the queen and it's it's this entitlement of being a Lannister and it's setting up all of these examples and, and morals and values in and it's really the cause of his house's downfall so um, you, you can see how George kind of takes the Lannisters from this you know really high place and it's he's they're basically um, being killed off um, you know it, everybody's put in a, a place uh, by the by a dance where um, everybody's put in a very uh, very delicate situation and it's it's not going to go very well for house lannister no and 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 uh, and of course in terms of mythological parallels we know that the origin tale of the lannisters was somebody coming in and basically stealing the rock from the casterlies and so of course if uh, those of you who are fans of Tyrion targaryen theories such as myself uh we could be seeing a similar thing where the only the, the last Lannister who has the rock is not even a Lannister, um, which seems would be apropos, I would think. Or maybe it'll just get broken and destroyed by a moon meteor or something like that. Drink, motherfuckers, drink! I've had the chat begging me <laughs> to say moon meteor, so I had to get one in there. But uh, 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 Chloe, um, uh, and by the way, I, I very much admire the chat's uh, flexibility. They've essentially adopted the Girls Gone Canon drinking cues. Like any sort of talk of dad, I think, is is triggering drinking. So this is good. Uh, dad, the drunks, no. The drunks in the chat know how to adapt, so that's good. Uh, but uh, you I've wanted to say something it. about. <laughs> you want to hit? You want to mention Jamie real quick, Chloe? Yeah, I know we vaguely hit Cersei, uh, and there's so much more to go through there, especially with her not understanding why she couldn't be the Jamie, you know, in the story, why she couldn't wear the pants, she couldn't have the sword. And obviously there's so much more to go with Mother Madness there. Uh, Jamie, I mean, it's so interesting that he was forced at such a young age. I mean, Cersei basically pulled one on him and it was like, I'll be with you forever, brother that I'm in love with forever. And you've only ever been with me and this is fun. Oh, I'm just grossed out saying it. Wow, that's gross. And um, I'm an only child, so incest sounds gross to me. I don't know about you guys. I don't know how you feel. I don't want to be too uh, edgy no, in this yeah, it's day gross. and age. It's gross. <laughs> It's gross. Okay, it's still gross. I just learned it was gross from Eleanor. Cool. So the hot take is that incest is gross. And so Jamie, like, you know, Cersei basically told him, I'm going to be in the capital and I'm going to marry this prince, which she says is the prince she's always wanted in her POV. Like, oh, I just wanted to be with Rhaegar. Sounds like someone else we know, young Sansa, you know, uh, and she gets that dream crushed underneath her. And she tells Jamie, like, well, I'm going to be there before she gets crushed, she says, so you should come here and then we could be together forever. And he joins, like, he takes a vow to be a forever for life virgin, except for when you bang your sister. And, you know, those those few instances, few and far between, um, that you bang your sister, I guess. And yeah, so like Jamie is stuck there and he's stuck in this lifehood and that frames everything he does. And he uses Cersei as like, 
his justifiable means out of it, but there's no justifiable means out of it. Like he knows it's never going to be like a we're married and we're king and queen of the kingdom. And at the most, if he gets that chance, you know, he gone killer. And like the fact that Tywin's shame came down and the fact like he was ready to excuse it. He was ready to be like, whatever, Jamie, fuck customs. Fuck it. I'm arbitrary. I'll fucking just like, these are the new rules. I'm Tywin. Everybody knows I shit gold and I own everything and I'll kill you if you don't like it. That kind of behavior Tywin's exhibited in the past caused like this fear that like Jamie doesn't want that. Jamie doesn't fucking want all that. All he thinks about is Cersei. Gross. God, it's gross. And so all he thinks about is like, how can I be with Cersei forever? She shows up at his door as a washerwoman to hide herself. Like, he doesn't care. That gives him a boner. He's about that. He's like, I'm cool. Whoever you want to be, I'm in love with you, sister. And it's just like his slow de-evolution between that kind of Jamie and pushing kids out of windows and not being cool and like slowly being like almost a normal human who's not on a redemption arc because he's not in a redemption arc yet. So shut up. He's not. He's not. But he's close to wanting to be on a redemption arc. So that's good, right? Well, don't you that's don't good. you think when he turned back to to, to Hall to save Brienne from the pit, that was a kind of a turning point or the beginning of yeah. a turning point? That's him thinking about a redemption arc. Okay, all right, that's fair enough. Um, I do. Uh, so you mentioned Cersei and how um, Cersei malevolently basically wants to emulate Tywin's brutality and strength. And of course, there's a great quote about that. At the funeral, uh, Mace Tyrell is speaking. Let me use my, my, let me get my Mace Tyrell. Lord Tywin was a great man, an extraordinary figure, he declared ponderously after he had kissed both her cheeks. We shall never see his like again, I fear. You are looking at his like, fool, Cersei thought. It is his daughter standing here before you. But she needed Tyrell and the strength of Highgarden to keep Tommen on his throne, and so all she said was, he will be greatly missed. Pretty good stuff right there. I love the um, I, I love the voice that you did right there. <laughs> well, I did say ponderously. <laughs> so, uh, I've got uh, Eliana. You've you've got some notes here about Joffrey and Cersei. I'll, it looks like good stuff. I want to let you hit this. Sure, and I mean we already touched a lot on Joffrey. Um, he said something that made me think something about Cersei quickly. And, oh, go for it. No, go for no, it. No, no, I just it came in. And then I lost it. Oh, no. Uh, well, oh, now I know what it was. Because like we were talking about it earlier. Um, so, A, first of all, like we see how much Cersei idolizes her father. We see how much she idolizes Tywin and actively strives to be like him, even though she differs from him in many ways. And earlier we were talking about, like, and by we, I guess, me, uh, how that disillusionment that comes with finding out that your parents are human. And obviously that happened for Tywin after this war. For Cersei, it happens upon Tywin's deathbed and finding his corpse. And she's suddenly like, wait, dad slept with people who weren't just mom? I think the exact line was, was dad, no. Was yeah. <laughs> Except she was, it was kind of like that. She's like, dad, no, no. Like, what is this uh, she was like she was like no no i i don't i no. don't see that uh, yeah. that didn't happen it's like this isn't happening this isn't happening and so 
you know, what she does is she just takes all the parts of Tywin that she likes, that she wants to be like, and she very much inherited the superiority complex from him and his ideas of ruling. And we see that as contrast, especially um, in the Red Keep. I think I think it's during the Blackwater where Cersei's talking about how you need to make sure that people fear you, where Sansa's like, I'm not going to make my subjects or like my people fear me. I'm going to make them love me, which is a very Ned thing to do. And subconsciously, I think Cersei parents very much like Tywin. You know, all of her children theoretically had Robert. And I mean, I guess they had Jamie too. I mean, they had two dads. Like, this could have been great, you know? But Cersei maneuvered it to be a one-parent household because that's very much what she was familiar with because that's how Tywin raised her, himself being a single parent. And just like Tywin, Cersei has her own, like, ideas and dreams for what her children will be um just like tywin has these ideas of what he thinks his children should be like and how they're all going to carry on her legacy and bring her power and this becomes most evident in like how she loves joffrey the most not only is he like the firstborn child and kind of like secures her power but also she just sees himself in him the most and sees him as an extension of herself and then you see, in some ways, Cersei kind of being towards Tommen, like a much milder version of Tywin towards Tyrion, right? She chastises Tommen for being different and for not wanting to do everything that she says. Yeah, that's true. And, but, like, you know, like, unlike Tywin, though, like, despite, you know, unlike with Tyrion, despite how much, like, Tywin disliked him, Tywin just seems to have never truly trusted Cersei or confided in her, and he never really learns who who Cersei is, um, and Cersei never actually learns to understand who her dad is and how he thinks and how to scheme as he does because he never actually teaches any of that to any of his children except for Tyrion. I'm looking at you, Amanda. It's your turn. It's my turn. Yeah. Yeah, Tywin, um, he does teach Tyrion, uh, you know, a few things. Uh, Tyrion does learn from his father. His father doesn't always give him the correct lessons, but uh, Tyrion's the one that really seems to exemplify because you know they say that uh, the Lannisters are clever from their their um, progenitor, Lan the Clever, and uh, Tyrion he's he's taking a lot of the things that he's he's learned from his father as far as like um, strategy and I, identifying um, some of the the different. Um, uh, things that that go on uh, he, he's able to have a little bit more insight into uh, the the motives of, of, other, of other people and he's basically given a lot more um, I guess intuition that, that he seems to be in, inherited as far as strategy goes from his father um, it's it's just really unfortunate that we have to see that interaction between Tywin and Tyrion because my heart really breaks every time that he he you know puts his son down a peg. He literally tried to kill him in uh, in the battle where he put him in the vanguard with the uh, uh, Valemen at the. Um, the the Vale tri tribes he he literally tried to kill him and he tells his son that he he wishes that you know he he should have killed him and he he breaks his son down to the point where 
he murders his own father. He becomes a kinslayer. He becomes one of the worst things, you know, that you could ever become. And and it's a kinslayer, and and it causes the the death of his father. But I mean, he had it coming. That's, well, that's exactly what I was talking about when I said Tywin is not a successful parent on any level. Absolutely. Like, he he fueled he filled Tyrion so full of rage that he that he literally shot his own father. I mean, and as we watch Tyrion. Uh, going forward in the story, that's basically his demon. Is that that rage and that pain that he's nursing in there? That's I mean, it's not just being a dwarf and all that stuff. I mean, it's it's Tywin, and uh, this is something I always point out when we talk about Tyrion Targaryen theory or RLJ and stuff. Like George is is very aware of the fact that it's the person that raises you that's your parent, and Tyrion being Tywin's true son has nothing to do with biology or genetics. That's just not how it works. Um, you know, he was raised by Tywin. Tywin will always be his father, just like Ned will always be John's father, despite the fact that RLJ, you know, is is true or whatever. So, uh, yeah, there's that. Uh, now, okay, so guys, we're at 2.10, uh, 2 hours, 10 minutes here. About 2 hours, 5 minutes. We started about 5 minutes late, but I think so... We're just going to go a tiny bit longer. We still have 165 people watching, so thank you, everybody. Um, we There's one more thing I want to hit, which is um, two other parents, and just let you guys get a couple quick words in. One is Doran Martell, and the other one is Balin Greyjoy. Um, and before I do that, I really want to quickly shout out some of the Super Chats that have, that have come in. I have not been uh, stopping to thank people because I just want to let the conversation go, but we've had some from Stephen Stark. And be patient, I'm just going to scroll up here. There's been about five or six. Um, Yensid, thank you very much, says, let's hear it for dysfunctional families, no good stories without them. That is very true. Uh, Wasser30, Taisha, story too upsetting. Have you heard Moon Meteor yet? Ariane and Quentin, great kids. So yeah, we're going to hit Doran in a second. Um, and we've got... Oh, it won't let me go higher. Shoot. Um, we had a couple from... Oh, gosh. I thanked you guys in the chat. Steph I, is. Steph is, yep. There is one. Uh, San Rixian. San Rixian hit me with one. So um, I've been thanking people in the chat, uh, so I have been seeing them. But like I said, yeah, I've been trying to just keep the discussion focused. Uh, it's not one of those sort of um, – well, anyways, you get the point. So uh, let's just finish up with uh, Doran and Balin, and anyone that wants to go first can jump in. I will, uh, I will parent the shit out of this Doran conversation real quick. Uh, I know we're moving through it, so we'll move fast. We got a handful of points. I think a lot about it. I have one tiny mini quote about Ariane from the Winds of Winter sample chapters that is very not contextual. It doesn't give anything away. Judge, Sir LML, may I be excused on it in this conversation? Uh, yeah, I guess, yeah. Yeah, it's really non-spoilery. It just talks about how she feels about Quentin it doesn't say anything about oh, yeah. what's going no, on. Not, okay, cool. Yeah, we're spoilers all. Yeah, sorry. Okay, good. I, I, I didn't know if we were good hard. with that. I, I was thinking too hard about it for a second. Yeah, go for no, it. No, yeah. I'm glad that we finally, we got there. We got there together. Um, yeah. So Doran, uh, Doran Martell, and since a lot of this has been Ned Stark anchored, I will keep it in similarity to that, the commonalities they faced, uh, because Doran's parenting lacks severely, just like Ned, and especially in telling his kids some stuff. Right? Like, he doesn't tell Ariane of the pact earlier, 
which has given her a long time to stew and create almost this underhanded, very light animosity that does not and will not go away between her and Quentin and the betrayal almost she feels that her father wouldn't just tell her the truth. Uh, And it helps to lead to enough rivalry for her to possibly command the Dornish swords to join, join Aegon's team in the Winds of Winter, like whether or not he's really Aegon, whether or not she knows, you know, that young Griff is or is not Aegon. And <coughs> Doran like tells her specifically, if you don't know, don't do it because this will be bad. The secrets he holds close to his heart, like vengeance for family lost and away from his kids, are really similar in a way, but different to the secrets Ned clutches that bring him down with like his family's safety regarding Liana and staying safe in the North. And the two quotes that I really wanted to share about this, there's a quote from the Queen's Maker in A Feast for Crows where she says, that is Nymeria's star, burning bright in that milky band behind her. Those are 10,000 ships. She burned as bright as any man, and so shall I. You will not rob me of my birthright. And that is before she knew the pact between Quentin and Daenerys and her in Viserys. And then, of course, there's a quote in The Winds of Winter in Arya's first chapter that is, She had resented Quentin for all those years that she had thought their father meant to name him as his heir in place of her, but that had turned out just to be a misunderstanding. She was the heir to Dorne. She had her father's word on that. Quentin would have his dragon queen, Daenerys. So Ariane keeps a lot of this Quentin stuff. Like she says, oh yeah, I'm cool. It's cool. But there might be some rash decision-making around whether or not it's cool coming up. And that's an example of Doran just withholding this information like Ned did, you know? Yeah, great. That's great points. Um, It's the, I mean, you can sort of understand why Doran keeps things a secret um, in certain circumstances. I mean, obviously things get out, not much stays a secret, but uh, seems like he should have trusted Ariane and Quentin to know because they're basically his right and left hand and they didn't they literally did not know what each other was doing so that that ended up biting him in the ass for sure I, Steph is with another super chat thanks Steph is go ahead Eliana just to like move things forward I'm also going to touch on like how Doran and Quentin's relationship was in that yeah. honestly we don't really see it like we see Arian and Doran interacting a couple of times well, and you can we see, see the how- footprints though on Quentin right yeah, and it I think it's strange, right? Because Quentin thinks so much of like this is what's going to make my father happy. He wants so much to bring his family honor and to live up to whatever his father's expectations are for him. He wants to help his father fulfill his father's plans and schemes, whereas of course Arianne on the other hand, she's subverting. She's like I have my own plans. Sorry, dad. But Quentin's trying to be that dutiful son yet that's not the parent that we should be hearing about his relationship with, right? Because Quentin was raised by his mother across the narrow sea, wasn't he? Like, like we I, no no the Iron Ironwoods. Ironwoods um, he, yeah. mm-hmm. Oh, with Ironwoods. Okay, I just like had assumed that he had like a well, better relationship with his mother, and like I don't know, Doris so, also a single dad. Yeah, he did have a good relationship with his mother when uh, Oberon Martell had the um tryst with the I, I don't know if it was the wife or girlfriend of or um the paramour of the lord ironwood they had a duel and he killed he it's 
rumored that he poisoned Lord Ironwood. And so because of that, Duran has to give up one of his children. And there's this huge fight because his wife, they don't, and I think she's from Norvos, I think it is. Yeah. They don't believe in fostering. They don't believe in giving up your child. And she fought for her son. And she, she was, she put her foot down and she said, you, you either, you know, it's, you either do this or I'm leaving. And he went against that. He sent his child away. He sent their child away. And that's why she, she went back to Norvos. But um, she, she was obviously very bonded to her son and, and fought very ferociously for him. And that's what caused the at the end of their marriage. But, um, but yeah, so. But divorce, it, we don't have very many of those in no. Saga of Ice and Fire. And I think that that's something that like, we don't see that explored either in the, it, it, which I think is interesting because in modern stories, you have a lot of characters like nowadays who are affected by like, oh, mom and dad split up, which I think is something that definitely affects people. Yet this isn't on the minds of Ariane or Quentin at all. Yeah, so that's a, it raises an interesting point. Um, there isn't a lot of divorce. However, there is a lot of single parenting. And George, this is something that George seems to have thought a little bit about. And I know that Amanda made some notes about this. So why don't you uh, take that, Amanda? Yes. Yeah, so we were looking at single, first of all, single mothers, and we don't, it, it's not laid out very specifically where we're seeing these, you know, quintessential single, single mothers, but it does happen. Um, the one that I did pick out was um, Alice Amont, whose father is a bear and that she become, became a bear, but she has, she's unwedded and she does have these children and you, you see it discussed, um, you know, wh whenever uh, we, we see discussion about her, that, that part of her is, is usually discussed. Um, but one thing that does happen with single mothers is um, when the father dies, we do have a lot of widows. When that father dies, that woman um, by default becomes a single mother. When Ned dies, she in turn does become a single mother. She she now is both mom and dad, and she has to kind of, um, you know, take on that role. And she does that, you know, like when we were talking about when she becomes, you know, his advisor and she's guiding him. She's giving him some of the advice that you know maybe Ned might have given her, given her given him. So she's having to fill both shoes. And it's something that can be very, very overwhelming when you're thrust into that role. You're not used to that role. And all of a sudden you become both mom and you're also dad. And it also happens whenever a man goes um, and, uh, you know, kind of leaves his wife and goes off to war. We see that happen um, quite frequently. Um, Ned actually um, impregnates Catalan and then goes off to war. And, and, and the wars can last years. Wars can last a very, very long time. Um, and by the time that Ned actually comes home, she's already got a newborn. She's got a baby. She's been taking care of that baby, you know, and, and she's been nurturing that, that baby. And she's been filling that role. And so by the time that Ned is actually, you know, coming back, he doesn't even see his wife pregnant. The next thing he knows, he's got, you know, a, a crying baby in his arms. And during that time that, you know, each woman that's being left by their husband has to to take on that role. And it can be very overwhelming and there you know, it's it's you, it's a, a lot to take on for for any any 
parent, mother or father. But it's and you're speaking for, and you're speaking from experience here, aren't you, Amanda? Yes, I, I'm definitely speaking from experience. So my husband went off. To, um, my husband did a, a, he did a Ned to me. So he, he impregnated. I was impregnated, and my husband went off to war. Went to war. And by the time that he came back, he he had a bundle of joy, and he did that for both children. He did that for both children. So he never had to be there when I was huge and fat and as big as a house and waddling everywhere and going to the bathroom every five minutes and crying, you know, every five minutes, you know, sometimes going to the bathroom and crying um, every five minutes. But, um, you know, you're, you're having to take on both of those responsibilities. There was a time when I had um, a toddler in diapers and a baby in diapers and I was doing it um, you know, all by myself, and it can. There's a real sense of abandonment. There's a, a sense of just overwhelm. Oh, there's you know a real sense of being overwhelmed with everything, and it, it it's a lot to take on for for any parent, man or woman. Um, but it just it's something that's kind of the nature of the beast. When when war happens, one of those parents has to leave, and you have to fill both shoes. You have to become dad, and you also become mom. So, so yeah. Yeah, and I've I've got a cousin. Uh, you know, same deal. Has several kids, and her husband was did multiple tours, and that's why people always say that you know the family serves too. You know, when a guy goes to war. So, yeah, it's, uh, that's a really great uh, bit of real life experience there to to lend. And I see a couple people in the chat um, relating to you, of course, Amanda. Laura D and a couple other people have dealt with that same issue. And so it's, you know, when you're a writer, you really, the, your story is better when you include everything from real life. You have to include every kind of life experience, different, as many different philosophies as possible. Uh, the more, you know, the more you include, it's kind of like your readers feel like, okay, he sees me. You know, the fact that, that George takes a moment to think about what military parents uh, like cats in cat situation feel like, it makes you, Amanda, or, or Laura in the chat really empathize with a character because it's something they can relate to. So this is what I keep harping on with this talk is like, make your characters relatable. Well, how do you do that? You, you fashion them like real people in as many ways as possible. So that's probably a good place to wrap it up. We are at two hours and change here. Uh, we've got 173 people watching us still. So thank you, everybody, so much for coming out. And thank you to all my guests for filling the air with such wise words. We've been holding everyone's attention. This went off just like I thought it would, only better. Um, you know, you, somebody might flip onto this and go, oh, LML had a bunch of girls on. He's trying to be politically correct or something. Well, the truth is, these are just three of the smartest people in the fandom that I know. And when I think about topics... I think about what people are good at. And as you can see, uh, all three of these ladies know a lot about psychology and they understand what makes people tick. I've read their writings and I know that to be the case and that's why I had them on here. And I didn't even have to say all that much today because, well, you see, you see what happens. So thank you so much. Uh, I'll give you each a turn to add the plugs, talk about what you just did or what you're doing now. Uh, but I just want to say thank you to all three of you. You did so well. So Amanda, go ahead, go first. Thank you, David, and thank you for having me on. Uh, it's, it was a lot of fun, and, and I, I really enjoyed it. 
Um, my, my name's Amanda, I go by Crow Foods Daughter. You can find me on my YouTube channel at The Disputed Lands. If you're interested in ironborn stuff, uh, that's one of the things I focus on. I just ha did a video on the Grey King. Um, I, I write a lot about the Grey King and ironborn culture, so if you're interested in that, be sure to check it out. You can also find me on Twitter at crowfood underscore SD. And thanks for having me. So if you've been watching, I'm Chloe. I am one half of the podcast Girls Gone Canon, where we're doing a, a Song of Ice and Fire point of view reread. We're doing by character, not by chapter, not by book. We're doing by character chapter. Uh, you can also find me, a side project I do is Drunk, A Song of Ice and Fire History. We're on YouTube, we're on Podbean. Uh, we have a new episode coming out in a couple weeks. I've kind of been taking a little break from it, giving more Girls Gone Canon. So we have The Sworn Sword, which is an episode of our Drunken Egg series coming up. Uh, that was with Joe Buckley from Tower of the Hand. He's great. He was real fun on that. So I'm finally finishing that up for the next couple weeks. And other than that, you can find me on Twitter at Lies and Arbor or on Tumblr where I post meta-analysis as Lies and Arbor. Well, I'll just say I'm fired up for the Barristan. It's looking good so yes. far. I enjoyed, enjoyed the intro episode. Eliana. We still need a catchphrase, so you got to figure that out. But <laughs> oh, oh, I had I have it for you. It's oh, okay. um, it's uh, what was it? Uh, give me a second. I'll think of it. I thought of it a second. Is Go that ahead. it? Is that the catchphrase? Because like no. Barristan's older. <laughs> Is that the catchphrase? <laughs> yeah. Oh, hold no. on. Give me a second. Let me think about it. <laughs> um. I'm gonna well, you, I'm gonna wait for what, what you've got, I guess, um, eventually. No, do do your plug and I'll I'll get I'll okay. think of it here. Okay, okay. Um so I'm Eliana, the other half of Girls Gone Canon, where yes, we are doing um a character read through. And I also am a host on the Maester Monthly podcast because this is a podcast that talks about the things that are going on in the Song of Ice and Fire subreddit, you know great stuff that people are putting out because ultimately like the reason why we're all in this cast is because we're all part of a large a song of ice and fire community you're all there participating in it um if you're listening to this or if you're like typing and saying things and we just want to highlight some of the great stuff that people are talking about so check that out check out the actual subreddit see what people are saying partake spit some hot takes um that's it and of course, since you mentioned Maester Monthly, we'll also mention Joe Magician's YouTube channel. Of course, Joe Magician's on Maester Monthly, good friend of everyone here, and uh, his YouTube channel's off to a great start, so check out the Joe Magician YouTube channel. I just had a little Anissa Cocker Super Chat uh, fly in there at the end. Thank you very much. Uh, so thanks, everyone, in the chat. There's been lots of good interaction. Clearly, this is a topic that got everyone fired up, so... Awesome. Um, people are asking for a part two. I don't know if we'll do a part two on parenting specifically. However, I definitely will have all of these fine folks on back on Between Two Weirwoods in the future. I've got a kind of a backlog of uh, people that I owe uh, return favor to. So I'm going to do as many of these as I can in between my scripted episodes. And I will get everyone through. And then I'll start getting people back on the second round with different combinations of people and different topics. So... Keep tuning in to Between Two Weirwoods, which will be on Sundays like this. I'm going to keep it at the same time once or twice a month. And uh, yes, that's it. Thanks, everyone. It's been lovely, and I'll see you again soon. Adios.
job, guys. Yay! Stop recording. I can't believe I'm mad. I said you got a picture. That's what happened. <laughs>